Oh my god, Stacy, did you hear where Jordan got his coke from? No. He got it from like this Denmark guy. It wasn't even fish scale. Ew, gross. And then on top of that, I scored some dope from Melanie's brother Brady, you know? And oh, could you hear me that? Sure. And the bundle was like two bags short. I was like, are you serious? Are you serious? Oh, I'm so serious. You're serious? And time you off? Of course. No, I'm so serious. Anyways, can you believe some of the people that they let into the pep rally? So gross. They should, like, charge at the door. For real. Let's go. (coughs) This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery. Located in sunny Southern California in Silver Lake and Malibu, Aloe was created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob, as a place a drug addict or alcoholic can go to get treated with compassion and connection rather than control. They have a crazy good staff with decades and decades and decades of experience treating addiction and co-occurring mental health disorders, including severe mental illness. They have a treatment center designed to make detoxing as comfortable as possible, which to me sounds terrific. My friend Don is there now. He's saying amazing things about the place. They have amenities that would make a spa green with envy, including sound bath meditation, equine therapy, surfing, and they are COVID safe. If you go there, you will be protected. You will be cared for, and maybe you'll even get sober. If you're fucked and you need a place to go and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California, I would totally check out Aloe. This episode is also brought to you by listeners like you in the Dopey Nation through the power of the Dopey Patreon page. It's www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. If you guys didn't listen, there was a free mini episode up this week at www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. Throw a couple bucks if you got it. It helps make the show better. Also, we have new merchandise available at www.dopeypodcast.com. We have the fucking exclusive limited edition Big Bud fucking t-shirt and long sleeve. We've got the super new zip-up hoodie. We've got the black and white raglan and all the other dopey favorites that you love. If you want snapbacks or ski hats or stickers, I have them. But I'm not going to ship for a little while because I'm worried about the coronavirus and my symptoms, and I don't want to ship you guys the virus. But that's enough of the ads. Here is the fucking show. Hello, and welcome to Dopey, the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And I'm Dave, and I'm in the attic, on the phone with my very good and old friend, Aurora. Welcome back to the show. Thanks, Dave. Happy to be here. In the, in the grips of a pandemic-consuming civilization, where you are at home, what's happening, Aurora? Well, here I am. It's day 28. Day 28 of shelter-in-place. It's day um, 20. Wait, hold on. It's day 28 of shelter-in-place? For me, I mean, March 12th is when I started working from home and staying home. So you've been sheltering for 28 days. Yeah, man. That's how long people go impatient for. (laughs) Uh, 
I can't think about the future. I can't think about how long this is going to last. I really got to keep it in the day because I'm I'm getting overwhelmed when I think about how long it might be. Well, they're saying no. They're saying they want to reopen the government on May first or the 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 the, the economy on May first. Yeah, I don't, that's not going to happen. I don't think. You say no. I think, I think it's dangerous if it does. Would you say you're taking I mean, you're taking the coronavirus COVID nineteen the way you're taking your recovery one day at a time? One day at a time, a daily daily reprieve. Yeah, I am. What's the what's what's the worst thing that's going on in your brain for this thing? I think the worst thing is that every night when I get into bed, I have every COVID-19 symptom. <laughs> I like literally do. I'm like, oh, my throat. Oh, my God, I'm hot. I'm cold. Uh, I have a little cough. Like, I definitely have it. Right. Um, and Dude. also, and like the paranoia and the judgment of other people is sometimes, you know, a little stressful. Yeah. I mean, I was out and about... Uh, hopefully not contagious, feeling like the devil himself, you know? And I was wearing gloves and a mask and making sure to try to keep my distance and everything. Yeah. Because I was positive. I mean, I think you should, I, I don't know. I mean, like, listen, I was very, very lucky uh, to get it and not get a bad case. Uh, yeah, I mean, yesterday, I think 750 people died in New York. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. it, it's fun to make fun of it because most of us are at home eating and watching TV, uh, but people are dying and it's very scary. Oh, and I mean, also like one of the things that is important for me to keep hold of is like, I'm so privileged, like I'm really fortunate and there's millions of people around the world who, you know, are not as fortunate, who, you know, people in poverty that are really going to suffer, you know? So you think these poor people aren't sitting around shoving pancakes and brownies into their face? And doing, yeah. yeah. No, they're not. You don't think they're doing at-home workouts? Exactly, no. Well, I hear you. <laughs> Which is what I've been doing. Filling the void with pancakes, brownies, and melt-your-face fucking workouts. I made my first pancakes this week of my life. How were they? They were pretty fucking good. I made them for I made them for me and Susan and Nora, and I put mushed up super ripe bananas and uh, and chocolate chips. And one of the pancakes, I took it out, you know, and it had a smiley face like burned into it from the skillet, like a perfect smiley face. And Nora took it as this amazing sign. So it's yeah, good. That is an amazing sign. We have to look for those moments right now. Yes, look to the pancake. I mean, I, I have, you know, I'm crazy. I have a lot of problems. Like, I am, like, you know, mistrustful. I'm, like, def- I'm not, like, I I feel like I want to keep looking in judgment at other people that are not following the rules. Like, you know, I see people posting, like, hikes or, oh, they went to Ojai for the weekend. It's just like, motherfucker, that's not how this works. Like, that's not essential travel. You're supposed to stay (laughs) local. You're not supposed to be, like, you know, on the trails or taking mini vacations or going to, like, national parks. And I get into a lot of judgment and, like, they're not following the rules, but I'm following the fucking rules and this isn't fair. You know, a lot of those kind of crazy feelings yeah that's one of your go-tos you're the yeah police officer aurora cop yes. aurora yes yes totally you've always been like that i'm T- driving myself fucking crazy with that so i'm like 
hey, how can you have patience, tolerance? Yes. Like, stay out of judgment. Not everyone's on fucking trial here. You are not the police. Right. Well, that's, I mean, exactly. It's self-awareness is good. And if there was ever a moment, like the best recovery advice I ever heard, and you and I talk about it all the time, is to wear your life like a loose garment. And if there was ever a time for a loose garment living, it's now. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I just got into some crazy fight uh, with Linda over feeding the kids where... Um, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. I wound up taking out a piece of corn on the cob to eat. And my little daughter, Susan, who can't... She's a very good talker, but she can't say corn. Instead of corn, she says, caca, which we always <laughs> thought was very funny. She sees me eating the corn and she says, caca. And I was like, okay. And Linda's like, what are you giving her the corn? And we wound up getting into this crazy fight over the fact that I was going to hand her a piece of corn. Um, but of course, Linda and I have an amazing relationship and I made the piece shortly after. <laughs> Good. Yes. I mean, my, you know, my boyfriend, we've been essentially living together since this thing started. Nice. Like, not officially, but we've been together every day since the shelter in place started and it's, you know, it's good. But then there's also like, sometimes I'm like, you're fucking bugging me, you know, or we're like little bickering happens. It's hard. You know, there's not a lot of like personal space in an apartment. Exactly. Exactly. Are you guys doing tandem workouts together and stuff? Oh man. I mean, I got him lifting weights. I'm like ready to put 20 pounds of muscle on him. I'm like, let's go. It's good though. He's loving it. It's so good for your mental health, you know? Yeah, that might be my my mental health is waning. Dude, I'll send you what we're doing. It's so, I mean, do you have any dumbbells? No. Do you think I have time to be fucking with dumbbells? My, I'm, I'm consumed. I'm, I'm Dave, oh, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, you know, three times a week for your overall mental, spiritual, and physical health. Send, it's critical. Put some dumbbells in the mail and send them. Send them east. <laughs> they, you can't get them right now. Like, you cannot get them anywhere right now. It's sold out. They're sold out everywhere. But you, there's plenty of body weight shit you can do. I'll send you something. It's like dumbbells, puzzles, toilet paper. You just can't get them. Are you working from home? Uh, last week was my last week of working from home. So now I'm officially unemployed. No way. Yeah, I yeah, thought I thought you had a I thought I thought you had some lead. I mean, I had a couple jobs lined up for April and May, but they have all been postponed. And word on the street is no. I don't think I don't think physical like production is going to start back up until probably August. So I might be out of work. I mean, we'll like I said, I got to take it a day at a time. But I could be out of work till August. Right. That is, uh, that's daunting. And and so what are you going to do? Your brain is all about exercise at home. What else are you doing to stave off the insanity? You know, filling the void with as much food as I can. Pancakes, brownies, mac and cheese. I'm cooking a ton. I'm also cooking some healthy stuff, but you know, I'm doing my regular meetings, uh, on zoom um, doing an old meeting that I used to go to with my sponsor in New York. I'm doing that on Zoom, so that's been awesome to see like all the old people from New York that I, you know, used to go to meetings with. Is your sponsor finally picking up the phone now that she's got nowhere to go? It is incredible. It is incredible. My sponsor is finally answers the phone when I call, so I'm talking to her at least once a week. Nice. 
And I'm seeing her once a week for this 12 and 12 meeting, which is great. Dude, um, do you know, do you, I, I, I think I gained back all of my keto weight. All of it. I'm, even though I'm eating brown, I'm, I'm saying the workouts, I'm able to eat brownies every night because I'm working out like a, you know, prison style. Have two, I mean, like, listen, I'm, I'm fucking up to my eyeballs over here. Um, and, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm walking, you know, I'm trying to walk early in the morning and then in the evening and it's nice in Los Angeles cause I am my neighborhood. I'm able to keep distant from people so I can take some walks and finished Ozark season three. I wasn't even interested in the end of season two. It's too complicated. There's too much weird reading. Shit. It's like reading you, a little bit. You, you, st- you stand by that show. Yeah. I'm surprised you don't like it. It didn't hold my interest, but I'm go- I'll go back. What the fuck? You know what we watched the other night? We watched the Little Peep documentary. Have you ever seen that? Oh, no. He-, he died from an overdose, right? Yeah, he died from a fentanyl overdose. Very, yeah. very depressing, depressing film. It's called- and I'm also... I think it's called Everything Everything I Want You to Be or something. Very sad movie. That sounds very sad. Yes. I'm also working with someone new. I'm working with this new woman who I haven't even met yet. I just like I someone a friend of a friend recommended. She's like got five months sober, so we went through step one last night. So that's super helpful. Well, yeah, that's awesome. I, my 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 recovery life is. I mean, I did. I did a Zoom meeting this week with a dude, a dude from RFI, from our old meeting. He invited me to speak at his meeting. Um, and to be honest with you, as crazy as this sounds, it was the first time I spoke at a 12-step meeting since I got 90 days. Oh, my God. Really? Yeah. Isn't that crazy? No, come on. Seriously. It was the first time. I mean, I've shared countless times, but it was the first time I, I qualified it since... You know, for four years, four and four and a half years, it was the first time I, I've qualified. Holy shit! Dude. I know, and it wasn't great. Oh, was it? I, it wasn't great. I did the same. I made the same mistake that I made, um, you know, four years ago, which is I, I just told too many dopey stories in the front, and uh, and then I crammed my recovery in the back. It's like ten minutes in. You're you're still in junior high. You're yeah, I'm like yeah. sober yet. Yeah, I'm like I'm drinking wine coolers in Central Park, and I don't want to go to the <laughs> dance because I don't dance well. It's terrible. Yeah, you're like telling the fucking Sean Lennon story again. Yeah, I'm like so I'm outside the Dakota, and <laughs> I really want to meet Sean Lennon. Yeah, exactly. It was not great. It was okay, but you know, it's like it was like I sh- I did it right, and then I felt sad and shameful. I had share shame qualification anxiety and then like then but then like a lot of people like seem to like enjoy it and they i think they were like they what they said is that i put them in touch with the disease which um which i bet you is good for some people (laughs) right right who knows Um, i do my best now we have a, a very exciting show we have this dude from this wait i i want to know more are you working or are you not working yeah, I'm working. I'm I'm constantly working. I'm working. Somehow I'm working. Don't bullshit with me. I'm like, are you work, are you doing catering? Well, how how can I possibly be doing catering? Don't you know I had well, the are coronavirus? Like, are you, no, I know you did. It's a miracle that you didn't fucking die with the way that you smoked. Yeah, Thank I God. know. I know. It totally it's it's a miracle that my, my it shows the, that your lungs can regenerate is what it shows. Mm. 
I don't think your lungs have regenerated, but I think you're very fortunate. Dude, my lungs regenerated or else I would have been bedridden on a ventilator from this thing. Like, my lungs are good, Aurora. I don't think that's how it works, really, because there are a lot of people who end up on ventilators that have never smoked or don't have underlying conditions. You're, to- I mean, you're I- right. You're right. I'm totally wrong. But I do believe that my lungs have gotten much better. I think they have gotten much better. And I think quitting smoking was one of the best things you've ever done. Yeah. I mean, quitting. Yeah, of course. Um, I've been working from home as much as I can. I I feel kind of useless. It's very hard to get a lot done. I do something uh, for cats every day. We're actually, and this is a weird thing to mention, but we're setting up this initiative to uh, feed a bunch of hospitals, which is cool. And um, mostly with the job I'm doing their social media and I'm just kind of like I wrote, we do a couple commercials where I wrote the, um, the voiceover and recorded some voiceover and stuff. And you know, it's, it's whatever I'm doing, whatever I can. It doesn't feel like enough, but I work so hard normally that it feels like maybe it's, it's bouncing out. And I bet you lots of people who work from home have that feeling that it's hard to be productive, right? Yes. I mean, the three weeks I was working from home, it was some sometimes impossible to focus, you know? Yeah. And also sometimes you're like, what? This does not matter right now. Like there, you know, I need to be talking to friends and family or like, yeah, I'm like staring out the fucking window or I'm looking at, you know, the New York Times like every 15 minutes, but it's okay right now. Like, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's it's like that. I mean, it's basically... And I, I, I see so many similarities between uh, COVID-19 and recovery or COVID-19 and addiction. And it's like you just have to do your best and get through it. You know what I mean? Get through every day, whatever good thing you could do, feel good about it, right? Yeah, yeah. You, you, don't, you think that's a stretch, my connecting the two? No, not. I mean, this in a lot of ways, it seems like this would be the perfect time to relapse or, you know, to to like fall down that dark hole of, you know, just shutting the blinds and getting fucked up right now. And so, you know, I think taking it easy on yourself and just, you know, physically staying sober each day, like, you know, and and trying to do one, one thing or, you know, the next right action is a win. Well, I think I, I was thinking about that recently. Like I was thinking about you and like how we lived And like in the past, this would have been an opportunity to stay as high as we could stay for as long as we could stay that way in in the most like casual sense of it. Like you were never on heroin and your Coke was always very, um, you know, not every day, but you, you know, you were an everyday pot smoker and you were like, you know, like a a great uh, stoner, great stoner layabout, I'll say. And, mm-hmm. um, and I would say like this kind of climate, like, is like stoner layabouts love this kind of stuff, but like, and, and the idea that we could be spiritually upright or that we could do the next right thing or whatever, that would not have been in a conversation. So it's like an opportunity to be a different kind of person, I think. Yeah, totally. Um, and, and, uh, and I think there's a lot less anxiety too, like being sober, even though, I mean, you know, I think a lot of times, like at the end of the day, I'm like, I'm exhausted and I didn't really do that much today, but it's a lot of anxiety that we don't realize. But I think that, you know, since I've gotten sober in four years, like my anxiety has been so much more manageable than when I was using. Like, 
the anxiety that I had that came with, you know, hangovers or getting high was just, you know, tenfold to what it is now. And yeah, there's a, there's a ton of people who are probably in the middle of a relapse right now or relapsing or whatever, but it's also like, I I mean, I keep saying this, I think now is the best time to get clean because everything is so fucked up. You know, and how could you possibly maintain using when nobody has money and nobody like dealers are going to run out and everybody's going to run out of everything? Yeah. I mean, I know someone who relapsed last week and ended up, you know, having a mild heart attack and had to go to the hospital. And it's like, you know, you're you're at risk of dying from every time you use. And then now you're in a hospital where you're at risk of, you know, contracting the coronavirus it's just like, it is such fucking insanity. Yeah. Now we're going to move on. Are you ready? Yeah. You ready to move on? Yes, yes, yes. How do you feel? You feel okay? Yeah, I do feel okay. I'm, I, I, liked, um, I liked the guest this week, and I'm excited to talk about it. The dude is a guy named Josh Eppard. He is the drummer from this band, Coheed and Cambria, or Cambria. And uh, Aurora is a big music person, and I'm, you know, I'm like a, a a great music aficionado, but I have no idea what the hell's going on in the world. Um, but Aurora, you never heard of this band either, huh? No, I never heard of this band, but it made me think a lot about Questlove, another drummer who's been, you know, every night he's on Instagram and YouTube, like streaming live, DJing every night, playing amazing music. It's been going on for weeks. I am so grateful for it. I love it. Like, there's a lot of amazing things that are happening right now during this time too. Have sure. you been Have you been hip to that at all? Yeah, the Tiger King, D Nice, Questlove. They're the winners of the coronavirus. <laughs> You're the loser. Of the I, I'm the loser of the coronavirus. <laughs> Well, do you th- are there huge? We're supposed to be talking about Josh Eppard from Coheed and no, Cambria. You're winning. You're winning, and I have pancake recipes. I'm going to send to you. I was happy with my Aunt Jemima banana chocolate chip. Um, you're doing great. But um, this dude, his name is Josh Eppard. He's the drummer from Coheed and Cambria. He's a rapper from a group called Weird Science, and um, you know, I want he he, he tells an interesting story. He has an interesting story of addiction and recovery. He sent in a little dopey freestyle. You want to hear it? Yeah, I'd love to hear it. Look, I don't normally do this, but fuck it, I'm on dopey. I told Dave I'm a 40-year-old nerd with a haircut by Floby. Trying to drop knowledge like I'm a junkie, Obi-Wan Kenobi. But in reality, I'm a fallacy waiting for the public to finally disown me. Shit, I don't even know me. I'm rap's version of a participation trophy. Tried heroin and watched my whole life spin and crash like Kobe. I got old wounds that have scarred over that I chalk up to the old me. Put some caution tape around foster faith and then pray to a God that fades slowly. Watch my cheese go Colby. Actually, that's a fact. Because when drugs and booze took all of my cheddar, all I was left with was Jack. With my brain barely intact. The kind of people around me that drug use attracts. I wasn't worried about friends not texting me back. I had the kind of friends that'll leave you to die after an OD but raid your pockets for your last sack. But shit, they're as sick as I was. Some of them good people that tried drugs. And now all of a sudden, something way outside the lines defined us. But here I am, still standing, doing dopey podcasts with Dave. I asked God for serenity to try and center me, and she blessed me with one more day. 
every day. So in a way, I'm proud of my story, or at least I'm proud of the fact that I lived to tell it. I hope you sit back and listen with an open mind and heart and say peace to us if you feel it. Weird Science, Dopey Podcast with Dave. All right. What do you, you know that my favorite thing about that uh, is his upstate New York accent. He also sounds a little bit like Eminem to me. His flow does. Oh, yeah. He's got a total Eminem type flow. Here he is, Josh Eppard, Coheed and Cambria, Weird Science. Check it out. So this is very exciting for me. Uh, we, cause you're, you're, I mean, you're saying you're old, but you're actually young. You're current. You're an incredibly successful musician. It's Josh Eppard from the band Coheed. Or Co- How do I say the band right? I'm such a fucking idiot. <laughs> Forgive me. It's Co- you and everybody else asks that, by the way. Um, it's Coheed and Cambria. I, I was going to say that, right? I would have just yeah, hated. I think you were headed in the right direction. I would have hated to say it wrong. Um, and Josh is also. Is is Weird Science your MC name, or is that the the group name? Well, it's the group name, but it's also my MC name, just to make sure none of it makes any fucking sense. Um, it, it was my MC name coming up, my first record. It was just me, but then we kind of put a little group together, and it's kind of the name of the group, too, if that makes any sense, man. It, I mean, it's strange, and like most things Weird Science does, not completely thought out and not very professional, or uh, not very professionally oriented, but it's both. It's my name and the group's name. It's a great name, and it's like incredible lyricism. Inc- I mean, it's great. It's incredibly professional. All of the music that you make is pretty fucking high end. Uh, Coheed and Cambria, like I, I never heard of it. You know, you're, you have a friend named Jack who hit me up, who's a dopey fan. And he, he was like, oh, the drummer from Coheed, I could get the drummer from Coheed and Cambria on the show. And I was like, I never heard of that. And he was like, what's wrong with you? And I looked at the band. The band's this multi-platinum band, toured the world, opened for Soundgarden, played TRL, six billion downloads on Spotify. Um, but I'm, you say you're old. I'm old is what it is. Um, well, I think we're both old, maybe. Maybe that's the answer. We're both old. Josh is from upstate New York. And uh, and I would say Coheed and Cambria is some kind of like, it's a crazy prog metal sound. And, and the story is so cool. How did you get into it? Well, God, it's such a long story. And, you know, over all these years, like we've gotten into it and trying to think of like a, like a unique nugget about it is tough because we've told the story so many times. But I will say about the fact that you never heard of it. We get this all the time. Like I have people like neighbors or something that come out to a show and they think they're coming to see us play at a bar with 12 people there and they show up and it's like, you know, they come to Boston and there's 4,000 people there singing every word. And they're like, what the fuck? It's floated under the radar in what I think is a really special way. I think it's a unique kind of career arc. Um, And the fact that we've been able to, you know, on my best nights, I imagine it's because we touched people and that, you know, it, it kind of resonated with them in a powerful way that it, it, it was lasting. It wasn't just flash in the pan because I'm sure we had those fans, too. You mentioned like the TRL thing. Um, you know, that was at a time when things had gotten to a height where it just had blew out of the box and a lot of bands were really taking off. But somehow, you know, I mean, not to be mean or anything, I've seen a lot of bands that were selling crazy records and doing crazy shows and then two years later no one gave a shit and it was over for them and here we are 20 years later still able to do this but yet it's under the radar for a lot of people um 
when you ask how it got started, we were a garage band from upstate New York, man. We were a band, and uh, I had met the other guys when I was, I don't know, 13 or 14, something like that, maybe even 15. I think I met Claudio, the, who's the singer and the, the uh, guitar player uh, and the guy that writes all the story. You know, he's like the main guy, but I met him when I was young, man, like 13 or 14, because we were in bands. What, and, I, uh, what I love about it, and I was reading about it, and it's just such a highfalutin concept to music, like just like the idea of him writing fantasy, and then you know you have this high concept, and then all of you guys are such crazy high level players. So it's like it's just it's kind of mind blowing. I totally recommend everybody in the Dopey Nation to if you haven't heard it, check out Coheed and Cambria. Um, but like. I mean, I, I played in bands my whole life, but my bands always sucked, and we ne- we never got past the small <laughs> the small thing. Like, what was it like when it got big? Like, like were you just on the trajectory? Did it shock you? Like, what was the the blow up feel like? Yeah, dude, that's a great question, by the way, Dave. Because I mean, what a human question, dude. Because it was. We were just, just for people that know, when you do the Dopey podcast with Dave, you have a little conversation beforehand, and we actually touched on this. I couldn't believe anybody liked it. And that's the honest truth, dude. And not that I thought it was bad. I just, it was hard to wrap your head around that this was actually happening. Um, you know, because just like anyone in a band, we played shows to 10 people that were pretty indifferent to us being on stage, you know? except for like, you know, a few people, like we, our good show would be 50 people. Um, that would be like, you know, that would, that was like what would fill the gas tank that would keep you going for the next six months, that one good show. And, you know, we were just a garage band talk about unprofessional. We had no clue. I actually just listened to a podcast with the guy that signed us to a small little punk rock label called equal vision records. And he brought up Coheed and just how green we were his words he was like they were green and this guy loves us but and he's right we were you know we were a bunch of kids up there jumping around the guitars were out of tune and but he felt like there was something special happening kind of underneath all of the but when you say dude dave when you say you're in bands that sucked so were we brother right so were we i believe me i couldn't believe it dude i couldn't believe when we were taking off and every like two weeks there was another kind of like box getting checked that was like i mean i can remember laying in bed and kicking and punching like the air just like a little kid like holy shit the first time i saw us on tv i couldn't believe it right i couldn't i still can't believe it <laughs> if you want the honest truth dude. right but it's like I it's like can't it's, believe it. what i imagine it's like is things start clicking like sound starts clicking songs start clicking the 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 actual production clicks like it, it it takes a million things to click to actually be that thing and and it seemed like that's what happened with you guys like it seems like a million things just clicked in properly um, yeah, well, I think any man, I would be hard pressed to think of a band that had any amount of success that that wasn't true for. And you're right, like a million things landed. And looking back now, like it all kind of comes into focus where you can actually point to tangible things that happened where strokes of luck, but also us as players. Like, you know, I had already, when I joined, they, Claudio and Travis and a guy named Mike Todd, um, who was that was the original lineup for the band they were in a band without me called shibuti and the band that i was in would play with them 
the band that I was in, we signed a major label record deal and that was the, ex- we got signed and then dropped. And that was like the extent of my music experience, which honestly, you know, if no matter what I did for a living to say you got signed to a major label record uh, company when you were 16 years old was like a huge deal. But, you know, I didn't really take much from it. And then, you know, we're playing and like I said, we're terrible and we're green, but things did start to click. And then once there was any kind of, once a company, and we're talking about like, you know, a very indie record deal. Like, you know, when people would hear, oh, you get signed for a $20,000 contract. We had this manager guy who he thought that meant they gave you a check for $20,000. That's not at, they didn't give us any money. Right. We recorded that first record in a bedroom, uh, in four days, but not consecutive days. We do like a Tuesday from five to eight, um, Thursday, the next week, you know, fucking get there at 12, 12 to four. They were like, sure. Cause it was a kid's bedroom. Like when his parents came home, we had to stop. <laughs> right. That's the first Coheed record. And we were, if there was one thing we were good at, it was in the studio and live. I mean, there's such completely different animals. We didn't have that. But once equal vision got involved, those things started to click, you know, there was a reason to take it seriously. Not that we didn't before. I mean, anybody putting in the energy and the sacrifice and all that stuff takes it seriously enough to do it. But we had day jobs. Totally. You know, it was not a full-time thing. One outside entity said, we believe in you enough to put out this record. And then, you know, we just, you start playing a lot, man. And the natural byproduct of playing a lot is you get better. And that's, you know, I don't mean to suck all of the magic out of it, but that's essentially what happened. Because we're, if I do say so myself, we're a pretty damn fantastic band nowadays, you know, but it was years of having to play every day. We would tour, we'd leave and not come home for eight months, dude. It was crazy. Well, I knew, I knew that's why my bands always sucked. We just didn't play enough. You know, I mean, it's like I always had it in my head that the Beatles in Hamburg playing 12 hours at a time, and that's what made them good. It's like it takes time to be good at anything, you know? Well, of course. Um, now, when, I mean, being a kid from upstate New York who played in hard rock bands, you know, I know upstate New York, and I know kids from upstate New York and musicians. When did, do drugs start to come into the picture? Well, you know, for me, drugs were always like in the background, you know, but not not hard drugs, you know, like the first time I got high on opiates was I, I took a Vicodin and I think afterwards I was like, yeah, I guess that was all right. And it would come around. I wouldn't even try to get after it, but it was always there like, you know, in the black. It was blurred to me. It wasn't like the focus and it certainly wasn't during the beginning. Nobody in Coheed really did drugs, but we, you know, we drink, smoke weed a lot, but it wasn't, um, nobody was doing hard drugs. Um, and nobody ever thought, you know, no one ever thought that, uh, a drug like heroin would come in and kind of fracture the heart of that band in the way that it did. Um, but yeah, I'd have to say they were dude from the time I was 15 years old, drugs were always around. We were you were like a stoner? Weed. Were you a stoner in upstate New York? A classic oh, upstate New York stoner? 100%. Yeah, 100%, dude. Yeah, smoked weed all day, every day. Um, by the time I was, I guess, 16, 15, 16 is when it really started. Like, But that was the extent of it. Um, and I don't want to like kind of water down. Uh, you know, I'm friends with so many people that smoke weed every day. In a way, I'm almost jealous of them because yeah. weed is just too powerful for me. You're talking to a guy who used to shoot $1,000 of heroin in his arm. Uh, a day, but weed is too strong. But it's really the truth, man. Why do you say when that? I, Expl- explain that to me. 
weed gets me too fucked up. I get too high. I get, and it's, it was started becoming, it's really funny because when I smoked weed every day, I would never try cocaine. I would never even dream there was a world where I, Josh Shepard, would ever even try heroin. Um, no, I was the same way. Can I paint a yeah, picture so for weird. the audience, for, for people who might not know this? Upstate New York is like the most magical place in the world. Uh, the seasons in upstate New York are like just so perfect. You know, the fall is like a psychedelic fucking tapestry of of red and orange and yellow. And oh, it's this, beautiful. And yeah, this, it's this, awesome. The spring is just flowers and the summer is fucking lakes and shit. It's like the greatest place to be a stoner in the world. What yeah, you- and there's plenty of them. And we, you know, we grew up in Woodstock, man. Woodstock, New York. There was weed. There was weed and acid. There was a lot of that growing up. Did you take a um, bunch of acid as a kid? As a teenager? Did you ask if I took acid as a kid? Did you take a bunch of acid as a teenager? Was that like part of your thing? Not not a bunch. I probably did it maybe 15 times in my whole life. Okay. Uh, which is enough, you know? To, no, enough totally. times. But no, I wasn't one of those kids that was tripping like daily every day. It was right. always like a powerfully kind of almost like transformative experience. And one that was kind of scary, honestly. So I'd, you know, I'd do it once and then it'd be a year and then maybe I'd try it again. Then maybe three months I'd try it again. But 15 might even be a high estimate. But I've done it, but not a whole, whole lot. I, I always said the acid was just too much. I, I, I didn't love acid as much as I took it, and I always thought it was too much work, you know, for me. It was just a lot of work to, to, to be on acid. What do you mean when you say work? Like, what, keeping yourself calm? Because that's what I'd have to do. It was always a scary experience yeah, for me. It's just too much. I mean, as a neurotic Jew, it was just too much thinking, <laughs> too many questions that I judged myself. It was just a lot of thinking. I, I love tripping, but I would say three-quarters of my trips were more work than, than pleasure. Oh, know? I hear you loud. And, dude, every single trip was too much work. Even the ones that were, like, amazing was too much for me. Like, it just was... We took some mescaline once that somebody scored at like a fish concert or some shit. And it like, I'll never forget it. I mean, I feel like if I wasn't, wasn't that day with that group of people in that setting, it could have really, I had never tripped like that. I mean, the visuals were blurring the line of where I could always, you know, you take whatever acid you get in high school and like, you know, there'd be like the walls would breathe and there's, you could kind of, you know, look at this record cover and shit would kind of like be moving on you. This was like you could not stop the visuals, and I found Ninja Turtles on the wall that, oddly enough, I could still find to this day. But they're, you know, they were moving and walking. There was an eagles in the wall. There was the depths of hell was in a cigarette butt. It was just really powerful, powerful stuff. And that was actually, I think, that was the last time I ever did. I knew somehow I made a good decision because it had come around after that, and I was just like, you know what, man, I'm good. And I was not. Uh, in the business of making good decisions back then at all. But um, I'm happy I made that one. It just was the final kind of nail in the coffin for tripping for me. But I got to say, Dave, weed is kind of the same way for me where it's too much thinking. Um, I just, I'm too paranoid. I'm too, uh, and you know what sucks, man? I wasn't when I was young. When I was a kid, I enjoyed smoking weed. It was lovely. Now this version of me, I'm too, you know, I tell you what, if I took two hits off a joint, I'd be like, is, is my heart okay? Are my lungs okay? <laughs> right. Why does my head hurt? Does my tooth hurt? Does this person want to punch me in the face? I'm, I'm convinced everyone wants to punch me in the face. And 
Nobody likes me. I don't like me. That's my problem. I don't like me. So when I smoke weed, it just kind of dredges all that up. And uh, God, the last like three years that I smoked pot, every time I get high, I'd be like, do I enjoy this? But I wasn't, right. you know, a casual smoker. It was every day, all day. All my money as a kid went to, you know, smoking weed. And that's what me and all my friends did. So you, when you ask, it's funny because I still have this like idea that weed isn't a drug. So when you asked me about drugs being around, I'm like, no, no, not at all. But no, yeah, we were smoking weed constantly. Right, right. And, and it, um, is, it is, it can be a very strong, strong drug. How did it, how did the landscape for you change? Like when you're saying you took a Vicodin, you didn't give a fuck and you wound up shooting a thousand dollars of heroin a day. Fast forward. Like what was the, the, the evolution, the progression? I can remember, and you know, like I've shared this story with, with people over the years and, um, surely there, you know, but if I had, if I had to pick one tangible moment, uh, it was a show, a Coheed show in Syracuse, New York. And uh, at this point, the band is so small, like you don't get hotels, but the club that night got us a hotel, which is like a big deal. And also that meant party and we're close to home. So a bunch of our friends are with us. And a friend of mine put a pebble sized piece of an Oxy 80 in my palm and said, try this. And, and I did. And you just swallowed again, it. I had you swallowed it. Yeah, yeah, just swallowed a okay. pebble size. But you're talking about a kid whose body has never experienced like powerful opiates ever. Um, like I said, maybe a few times I'd taken Vicodins here or there. Was could take them or leave them. Wasn't super into it. Never spent money on it. But I said to him that night, I said, uh, and he'll never forget this either. And he shared a lot of this journey with me. And thank God has crawled out and really carved out a really beautiful life for himself. But. I said, I've waited my whole life to feel like this. Mm -hmm. And he looked at me and went, uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, we laughed, but yeah, it really changed the whole trajectory of my life. And that's not, God, if, the, if my buddy ever heard this, that's not, it would, if it wasn't him, it'd have been somebody else. Or, that's what people were doing. It would have found me either way. So that's no, it's like, not his fault. On him, but, I hear you. Um, yeah. What was the, describe the feeling. I mean, I, I know that the audience is like, there's a shitload of, opiate addicts who are uh, clean and or, or are still using or whatever, but I think for the people that aren't, they're so interested in why someone like you or I felt this feeling and said, this is how I want to feel. Like, how would you describe it? Okay. Uh, if I had to describe what it was like for someone that didn't know, that might kind of change things. And, and I think that's a really kind of interesting question, an interesting perspective. Um, Every edge of life was immediately rounded off. Every rejection didn't exist anymore. Right. Um, all the things from this pebble. How dangerous could this pebble be? I mean, I just didn't think of it as a dangerous thing, but it was really true when I said I've waited my whole life to feel like this. I had never felt better. Everyone talking was interesting. I was interesting. The world was a beautiful, bright place and everything was great and who wouldn't want to feel like that you know i didn't i didn't give it much thought obviously we were kids who were like i said we'd smoke weed we'd drink and it just didn't seem dangerous and then so that was a night in syracuse you have a piece of an 80 it hits you perfect i, I mean the first couple times i ever did opiates it was heroin and it hit me way too hard and i was like that's too much you know what i mean i was like that's that's just too much like what happened dave you threw up and got sick yeah yeah i, I threw up i got really sick um 
like I, I wound up like passing, like passing out with some girl that I wasn't into, but I woke up with her and, uh, and I, I woke up just like pale and like, and sick. I was, I was sick the second I snorted my first bag of heroin. And when I woke up in the morning, I was still sick. And in the morning I was like, I just want to smoke weed. I don't want to do this. And it, it took me like another, the next time though, the next time I did dope, when I woke up in the morning, I got really high. And when I woke up in the morning, I was like, I want to feel like this forever. I had the exact yeah. same reaction and it was, the world was peaceful. But the real thing was that all I'd ever wanted in my life was to not care. And finally I didn't care, and I was so Fucking, happy yeah, man. to have that I, happen for me. You know, I know exactly what you mean, and it, that lands just as hard as anything you could ever say lands. I, I agree with that, all of me. I agree, man. Like I didn't care, and it was such a relief. A world's worth of weight came off my shoulders, and uh, you know, and then you get into other things too. Like I felt. These weren't things that were thought out. This is a guy looking back trying to kind of dissect some of it. But, like, I felt cool. Yeah. And, you know, like, I wasn't, like, I don't want to paint it like I was, like, the 40-year-old virgin. Like, you know, I had my fair share of ladies. But rejection did not exist anymore. So all of a sudden, like, any girl it seemed like that I saw, there's something that comes with a confidence and, like, since rejection the pain of rejection didn't exist i would be kissing on this girl now and it felt good dude i felt cool and uh, you know as painful as it is to admit i guess you know sober me if there wasn't drugs and alcohol i probably would be a virgin like i would have to lean on something which is really pathetic and sad but it's the truth uh, don't be and, so don't be so hard on yourself <laughs> <laughs> that's nice of you man that's nice of you but it's really the truth i felt cool and then i i can remember like first cleaning up in rehabs the hardest i don't want to say the hardest part i mean you know getting clean was brutal but like i didn't feel desirable to the opposite sex i didn't feel desirable to the male to any why would anyone want to talk to me like all these things just got dredged up that i didn't walk i ran right back to drugs every time well, what, was, what happened though between you know your your stoner and your you know coheed is not gigantic and you have your first pebble like how does that roll into a habit like what did that look like for you well i think you know and i'm I'm sure you can dig this too. When you say, I want to feel like this forever. And I say, I've waited my whole life to feel like this. You know, the next day I'm looking for that feeling again. And then, you know, it's actually a miracle. I was able to keep it together for the next like couple years as it spun into heroin. But you know how this goes. The a next pebble day, turns into half. Well, the next day, sniffing it. did you seek it out the next day? Like, oh, how? yeah. Okay. It was immediate. It was immediate. The next day I bought two and they were expensive to me. Dude, I never... You know, we'd be getting whole scripts of Vicodin for 50 bucks from somebody. I had no basis of what this stuff cost. And when he told me it was 25 bucks a pill, which is probably laughable to anybody. I have no idea what it costs now. But um, that seemed really expensive, and I bought two of them. It's very um, expensive. That next morning. How can you have it? It's so expensive. Like, how do you have a habit of that? You know? Well, that, dude. That's what happened. By the end, I had drug dealer friends. I put that in air quotes, by the way. Friends that were... You know, they, they, I had some money, but they thought I was filthy rich. So they would just rip me off. And, and I knew it. And I did, as long as I got the drugs, I didn't care. I would buy, I mean, just insane amounts of, of oxys. And then they would run out. And 
people I'd heard like stories of that heroin was the same thing. I'd heard, you know, rumblings of that. I never, you took a kid who we made a friend of ours had a bag of heroin and said like, dude, we can't find any pills. We were driving all over upstate New York, trying to find oxys, trying to find the generics, anything. At this point, we'd take some Vikes, anything to get us through. We're sick. So we're junkies at this point, but we hang on to this notion that like, you know, street junk uh, addicts are scumbags. We're, we're, we use pills. It's different. Like, you know, it's totally ridiculous. But at the time, that's the logic that we hung on to and how we kind of rationalized. He pulls out a bag of heroin and we made him throw it out of the car. Two weeks later, I tried heroin and I thanked I thought the universe had smiled upon me because now I didn't have to spend $60 a pill to get oxy 80s and you know how it is upstate dude everything is way more money yeah yeah way I, more money the first I mean, the first heroin i ever did was from a dude in a band that lived in hopewell and he brought it to uh to my school and he and he would make all of his money driving from like poughkeepsie to the lower east side and coming back and selling it all you know so that that was how he managed to keep up his habit uh, well, yeah, you can make a killing. I yeah. mean, what I really want to know though is walk me through the band getting bigger and the and the habit developing. Like, what does that look like? Well, you can see it on TRL. I mean, I'm on coke and heroin on Total Request Live, which right. is insane. I think you know it was spinning. They were kind of working in conjunction. The band. Remember before I said it was like every two weeks there was a new box getting checked or a new like thing happening all this good and like that wasn't enough for me i kept having to add on top of it drugs and 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 i had money for drugs so it very quickly i didn't even see heroin until i was 22 years old i never nobody did that shit in high school when i came up nobody you'd hear about a kid doing heroin it was a different school and like no one it had this real kind of Oh, it's dirty. Dirt bags do that. But I, you know, all my heroes were junkies. I was always curious. But again, I never thought that I would do it. But once I tried it, I looked to the heavens, thanked the, thanked the universe for this cheaper option to get high. And then it was, you know, the gloves are off, no holds barred. And it just so happens the band is, you know, it's seriously every two weeks something is happening that is like we are being propelled up the ladder here and i'm just medicating like the whole time just to i don't know i feel like that would feel pretty good for anybody for some reason for me selfishly it wasn't enough and i think like any junkie i thought i was the exception to the rule i already knew i couldn't stop without getting sick i already knew that but i would i was gonna be all right and i didn't give it much thought because i think any thought would probably scare the shit out of you and so i didn't think about it at all but I mean, it's, you know, I wish I had some kind of clever quip or like turn a phrase here. It's just, that's how it happened. As the band was catapulting up, so was the habit. They right. were hand in hand, really. And, and nothing to do with each other, dude. It's so uh, odd to me that people think um, that being in a band coincides with like drug abuse because maybe in the 70s and the 80s, not this the worst place for me to be was on tour because it was hard to find drugs heroin's not the kind of drug you can walk into a party like who's got the heroin you right know, it's like it was hard to find on tour you know and it's like a, a drug spoken about in soft whispers and like and you know you had to kind of find and i did i would find them because i would go to great lengths to find people and 
And, you know, I was a fucking junkie. I had money. I'd say, I'll give you $300 right now to find me some heroin. And people would try, but money always talked. So money is just, I'm bleeding money all the time. I'm getting ripped off constantly. And um, Can you remember, yeah, can you remember any like, like, cause that's what, I mean, I loved and hated, like I, I used to work a little bit on the road for a TV company when I, when I was an addict and I'd have to like hunt down heroin and i loved it when i found it and i hated it when i didn't but there was a lot of like adventure you know what i mean as as dumb as oh, it sounds dude, totally and that feeling of when you scored it not oh. to like romanticize it here but there was no better feeling well it's like you're like indiana jones trying to find the fucking lost ark and you do like can yeah, you <laughs> can you give us um, that's exactly what it's like give I mean, us give us a story like a road story like where you had to hunt it down and and either a good one where you do or a good one where you don't well this is one where i don't but man shit got fucking hairy fast so we're in texas uh vinnie paul the, the drummer from uh pantera um now pantera is our dime bag on you know rest in peace and vinnie god i always forget that vinnie passed away um Dimebag had already been shot and killed at that show but vinnie had come out to the show and he's hanging out he has a strip club there and I'm like debating, man, do I ask Vinnie Paul where to score heroin? Like, I don't know what he's into. I know he's drunk as fuck, but so we all go to the strip club and uh, I'm kind of like strippers. This is perfect for finding dope. Yeah. And I every dude, they, it's like I asked a bunch of nuns, like every stripper that I ask for dope is look is like, ew, you should not be fucked. My girlfriend fucked with that. And she's that, you know, like I'm getting the run around, getting the third degree. Um, and I just had enough. And I take my pick up my Blackberry and I walk out of the strip club. I have no idea where I am, dude. I don't to this day. I don't know where his strip club is. I think this was like outside of Dallas or something. And I start walking. Where am I walking to? I can see way off in the distance. There's a Waffle House. And in my mind, basically, I'm faced with either you find dope tonight or tomorrow. How are you going to play a show? You're going to be sick as a dog. I mean, you know, I brought out my you know who knows two hundred oxycontins and my fucking whatever I had an ounce of dope. It's go- supposed to last a month. It's gone in four days. You know, it's, it's the way it goes. But yeah. um, I'm faced with that. You need to find it, or you're fucked. So I'm going. I see a Waffle House light. At least I think it's a Waffle House. It's so far away. I walked for like half an hour, not any closer. It's like Texas. And when you see that yellow light (laughs) starts pouring rain on me, I've got $1,600 cash in my wallet. So I start running as I'm running. I must've dropped my phone because I get to what I thought was a waffle house. It was like, it used to be a waffle house. It's not, but it's a restaurant. It's like some kind of diner. And it is, this is bad news, dude. Like, you know, it's bad news. I'm perfect. I'm like, Oh man. If you can't find dope here, you're a, you're a worthless junkie. Like, this is it. You're going to find it. It's the Waffle House is like, or no, there's a gas station across the street and connected to the gas station is a hotel. Okay. But like the grimiest fucking place you ever saw. I walk over there, bus call, any band, you have a bus call. And that's when you're expected to be back at the bus call. If you're going to be 10 minutes late, you're in touch with the tour manager. Like, it's a thing. I don't have a phone. And I know people are out looking for me now. They're probably getting super worried. It's after two in the morning or whatever time the bus call was. It's later than that. Because it took me like two hours to walk to this place. Dude, it was so, it was miles and miles and miles away. So I get there. I know I'm working with no time. 
they're probably got the cops out looking for me. And I'm, I see this dude, like your typical straight out of central casting, dude, like your typical, like Texas. I don't know how else to say, like, not a good guy. Um, a Texas near do well drug dealer type. You're saying, yeah, dude, he's like this scrawny. He also looks maybe 17, 18 years old. He looks super young. I'm young too at the time. I'm probably 23 or 24. And I'm like, dude, here's the deal. And this is painful, dude. Like I, I hate that I ever acted like this, but it, I said, I'm in this band. I'm in this famous band. And, you know, oh, God, it hurts to even say, but I I'm going to be honest. This is good. This is I'm going to be honest. This yeah. is good. Yeah. This kid had no idea what a fucking co-eating Cambria was. He, uh-huh. And I said, dude, I'm in this famous band. We just played at the arena tonight, and I need to find dope. I have $100. And like an idiot, I pull out my whole lot of money. Oh, no. And, dude, I'm so fucking drunk and just scared i'm terrified of being sick i said dude i will hit you off here's a hundred dollars to even help me and he's like hold on bro hold on bro i'm gonna get us a room i'm gonna get us a room so he takes my hundred dollars and gets us a room for an hour with what 30 bucks or something this place is as seedy as it gets dave like they rent rooms by the hour apparently like there wasn't a sign that said that but this kid knows and then I can tell he's setting me up to get robbed right. and or killed. I know. And I tell him, I say, dude, I know you're like calling your friends to come over here and rob me. I'll give you, just get me dope and I'll give you all this money. Just get me dope. And he's like, no, bro, I'm trying to hang out with you. You smoke rocks? And I'm like, uh, no, I don't really course. smoke rocks. And he pulls out uh, what I assume was rocks. I've never smoked crack. I didn't know. All I know is like the whole room smells like kind of like burning plastic or something. Yeah, yeah. Awful. That sounds like, like rocks. Yeah. Then I start contemplating like, well, maybe some rocks is what I need right now. You know, maybe I, maybe I should hit some rocks. I don't. I never ended up hitting it. But I say to him, I'm like, man, I never tried. I'm starting to ask the questions that like could lead to me, um, you know, smoking crack for the first time, as painful as that is to say. Um, and we get to talk and he, he's on his phone. I'm like, so what do you say? So what do you say? So what do you say? And he keeps like hiding his phone from me. Now that could be, I guess, that he had a dealer where he's trying to make as much coin as he can from it. But I really had a feeling shit was getting out of control. I opened the door and I looked down the balcony. There's the cops. Oh the my cops God. are literally looking for me. And they, they ask me, hey, what are you doing up there? And I come down and I try to tell the cops like the truth. I'm like, listen, man, I don't know who this kid is. I think there's something funny going on. Uh, and they're like, are you our missing drummer? And you're like, you're like, shit, you're I like, am. you're like glad to see the cops. I uh, do. No, I'm not painting it. Dude, a hundred percent glad. I feel like on another plane of reality, that was the night I died because right. it was getting bad. And the cops told me, they're like, we knew to come check here. If you have anything on you, we're not letting you in the car with it, throw it out. So I was like, damn, if I did find drugs, imagine that they wouldn't get me out of there with the drug. How cool is it that they weren't threatening to arrest me though? But that's um, that that's that rock star treatment. That's I that. guess, but dude, they had no idea who the band was either. Nobody knows who Coheed's the biggest band that no one's ever heard of. No. They had no idea. They were making fun of the band name as they like drove me to uh but they get on the radio and talk to somebody uh, who somehow gets into oh, our bus driver probably had some kind of CB where the cop, so the bus pulls over. The bus had left. The bus, the drivers everywhere, they're like, listen, we got a schedule to keep to. We're out of here. He'll have to fly to the next city. They pull over on the road and the cops drive me the half hour outside of Dallas to meet up with the bus. And you can imagine my tour manager was not happy. Um, and you can imagine I was also not happy. I was fitting on asking the cops if they'd like go in the evidence room yeah. for me for a thousand bucks, but I didn't ask them. But 
So um, what did you do? That's just how one did... that comes to mind, dude. I've got some fucking wild ones, but you how know, I'm that... traversing the country trying to fucking get drugs and trying to keep up a habit that's unmanageable, completely how... unmanageable. How did you get? How did you play the next show? When did you wind up getting the dope? When did you I would the... have to? I mean, dude, it had to be either the next day or the day after. I don't. A lot of my memories are blurry, and but we were at the point where I could not function without drugs so the next day i had to i mean every day of that tour i'd get into something like a bad day would be getting a hold of two oxycontins that i paid way too much money for because i have to like bribe everyone to do it for me because you know nobody wants to go find the junkie junks you know so i was spending so much money but if i played the show and i didn't miss any shows on that tour this would happen every day and some days were successful other days obviously weren't um, I think it was that tour, some dude on a bicycle. I, it's the only, I would never suggest doing this. I gave him like three or 400 bucks cash, a dude on a bicycle. And he came back with the drugs. That's a good I man. Could, That's a good to man. To this right day, I can't believe, no, dude, he was awesome. His name was Frank. This was Atlanta, Georgia or outside of Atlanta, Georgia. We were at a bar and he told me, he described the pills perfectly. He's like, yeah, we, we can't even get rid of them. People don't want to do that in the hood. Like it's too fucked up. And I was like, dude, I will take, he's like, I can't go get them without money. And I'm like, I know that you're ripping me off. He was an old black guy and he, he might be the most solid motherfucker I ever met. He said, Josh, I'm not ripping you off. Old, by the way, meaning he was probably 40. I right. was again, you know, right. was in my early twenties. He said, I'm not ripping you off. I know it seems like that, but if you trust me and give me that money, you'll see my ass coming up on that bike, and I'll have what you're looking for. And I, to this day, I can't believe it. There he was. And it didn't even take long, dude. He's going for like 10 minutes. I love those stories. 10 minutes. I love he that. He came back. Uh, I feel like he was going to, because it was so close. Why didn't he just say, walk with me down there? Because he didn't like, want to. He, was, he felt like it would be a risk to have you with him or whatever. Yeah, I guess. No, that's totally, totally. Yeah. But or maybe Frank, he had. man Frank, is, he's like a, one of the most solid guys ever. Like He had every reason to rip me off, except that it was wrong. He was a caring, too. He said, take care of yourself. Man, I remember he kept saying, y'all white boys is crazy with this shit. Right. Well, he's right. Um, he's right. And he was telling me that he, his words is that black dudes in the hood don't do this shit. We smoke weed and that's it. And I was like, well, you guys smarter men than I. And what about like, you said the rest of the band wasn't really using. It was just basically you, right? No, no, it was me and Mike Todd. When I, when I said, I kind of misspoke because me and the bass player, Mike Todd, who famously on tour with Soundgarden robbed a Walgreens, um, I don't know if you came across that story. I did. Uh, That's my next question. What happened yeah. there? Well, um, y- you know, I, it's hard for me to speak. Mike's a friend of mine, and Mike's somebody that, you know, I care about Mike a lot, and I don't want to, like, kind of damage any trust, but the story is what happened, dude. He was, you know, and I'm, obviously I don't think it's any kind of uh, beating down any trust factor here to say this. Mike was a junkie just like I was. I mean, everybody knows that. It's public knowledge. He ran out of drugs, and this is what people do when they don't want to let down their friends and let down the business and let down everyone when they have to get drugs. Um, now, I'm not condoning what he did, of but course. he was so sick and so fucked up that he walked into a Walgreens and robbed it, and they didn't even have any Oxycontins. Well, how did he like rob the, it? What did he do? He gave them a, a note. Yes. He had written it on his phone. Uh, I have a bomb and I'm going to blow this place up if you don't put all your all your opiate pills in a bag and hand them to me. What I don't you know that's essentially what it said. Right. Exactly what it said. Um, 
and she did. And uh, he got a bunch of pills and got out of there, hopped in a cab and told the cab driver who he was, which is, I think he wanted to get caught. On well, that's level. how he Mike, got caught. Mike's a smart guy. That's how he got caught by telling the cab driver, not from camera or anything at Walgreens. Yeah, well, they saw him on a camera get into a cab. You know, he he darted, uh, he moved a few streets over, and obviously, I thought he was safe. They had him on camera on camera from a gas station or something getting into this cab. They can see the cab number. They called the cab. They said, "Do you know anything about this guy?" He said, "Yeah." He said, "He's the bass player for this band, Coheed and Cambria." Wow. Um, wow. So he gave which him, makes I mean, me right. think that he wanted to get caught on some level. But. He was also out of his mind. You know, you don't do that without being out of your mind. Um, how how did it like? What was the end of the of the run? Like, what? How did it all go down? I mean, it's multi tiered, Dave. I you know I wasn't in the band at that point. I left the band. Like we things had disintegrated to a point where. You know, I put those guys really through a lot of hell. And, like, um, you know, at the time, nobody's better at rationalizing their own misbehaviors and their own shortcomings than a junkie. And that was true in my case. I had, it was an enormous European tour. And I decide the day, because going to Europe was just as hard, man. Right. Um, finding drugs was so hard. And then you had to fly with so much dope. And even in New York, I could get ounce upon ounce of coke, but I could not find enough dope. And I just was like, I'm not going over there with, without something. No way. I'm not doing it. I'm not going to get sick over there. And just, oh, God, the smell of it and everything's just awful. And um, Why didn't you so get methadone? Why tour, didn't you bring methadone? Um, you know, I'd never, at that point, I had never tried methadone. Um yeah, you know, Dave, there's a lot of things that I could have well, been honest. Maybe it's a stupid question. I, I remember I remember I had to go someplace on something and I didn't have enough money to bring enough dope. And I wasn't on methadone either, but I wound up looking for dope and buying methadone and getting fake methadone and getting sick anyway. But it was your business to be traveling. Like that must have been just so difficult and painful. You know, to constantly yeah, no tour it ruined touring for me. I mean, it you know beyond just like it ruined everything good in my life. Uh, it ruined these magical special moments. And what a lucky motherfucker I am that I get to have a second chance with the band. That I get to kind of reestablish why I love music in the first place. Because at this point, dude, it was a drag, selfish baby brat is what I was. Right. I want to go home. And why did I want to go home? Because I, because getting drugs was hard. You know, it was hard to do on the road. It was hard living as a junkie out on the road. And like, um, going to Europe was just like the nail in the coffin. So I called those guys the day before the tour and said, I'm not coming. You got to understand like these tour, you know, the band still hasn't recovered. There's certain festivals that won't put us on. Like you don't just drop off the day before a show. There's hundreds of that if not millions of dollars in insurance right. and people that count on you it didn't matter at all to me dude i was very selfish and self-centered and really was just like um if i'm telling the whole story i don't want to just beat myself down here i did get on a plane and ended up going over but the other junkie in the band mike found out i wasn't there his dope sickness started setting in he told me he brought enough for what, what he thought was the first two weeks. It was gone in three days, of course. And then our planes like intersected. He jumped on a plane and came home as I came out to Europe. So I land. Mike's not there. And I, I wish I did a lot of things different. I wish I was just honest with those guys. Right. I wish I said, guys, 
I'm a junkie. But this, mind you, this whole time I'm telling everyone, promising my best friends that I'm clean. Because, um, you know, things had gotten to the point where they, they were like, oh, this is a problem. You know, and we're nodding out at practice. We're all fucked up all the time. They like, had to know, We weren't though. tricking anybody. Right, they had to know, and they didn't confront you. It was just like this dirty secret that they hoped you would deal with, I guess. Oh, no, they, they confronted me many times. Um, but it was kind of like, Hey man, keep, you know, they're not babysitters. It was like, keep this shit together, dude. We love you if you need help. So I had this lie that I was clean when no one believed me. And I could have, I could have not missed two records with my band. I could have been there the whole time. I could have not ended up back on my mom's floor. If I was just honest with them and said, you guys, I'm a heroin addict and I need help. I don't know how I'm going to get through this tour. I bet we could have got me on with a doctor and got me on methadone or suboxone right. or something. Yeah, they would have done something like that, but I know what you oh, mean. Oh, no, they would have. Of course. They never, they never, I never didn't think that they didn't care. Dude, I pushed them to the absolute limit. There was a show in Chicago where I was so fucked up, I'd stand up every two songs and quit the band on stage in front of 5,000 people. I think I got on the mic at one point and yelled, this is weak, yo, and I just walked off stage came back i mean you know it's funny because it's so awful but right. i did that i fucking did that and they they had every reason to boot me from the band and they still waited till i said i'm out right they gave me every opportunity and it, you know they deserve uh not my they deserve you know a lot of loyalty and a lot of undying respect and they get it from me i mean we you know this is so long ago we've, we've put this stuff to bed but it was awful i mean you know, the actual truth, I don't think I've ever really said this publicly, is after that, after I said I'm not coming to Europe, you know, people were obviously heated. They were really ticked. And then it was, we need, you have to go to a rehab. So I went into a rehab. Of course, it lasted. I spent one night there, left the next day, and uh, we were supposed to have a meeting. I, they still didn't kick me out of the band. And we were supposed to have a meeting. And... It was in New York City, Tuesday at 11.30. I get high, you know, I'm all fucked up. And I, I look at my phone and I see that it's Tuesday, 5.30 a.m. And I think that I missed the meeting because I'm so fucked up that I forget how to first grade. It's 5.30 a.m. on Tuesday. The meeting is in X amount of hours. I thought I missed it. So I sent everyone an email saying, well, I guess by now, you know, I'm not coming. I decided to quit. I'm sorry. I don't want to hurt you guys, but I tried to get all like, like it was my decision. Well, it's not you. Right it's me. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but right. clearly, trust me, dude, by this point, they were like, this ain't going to work with Josh. I mean, Claude told me, man, he told me, you know, after we, you know, a lot of talking and all these, I mean, I've been back in the band now for eight or nine years. It's been a long time. Um, but he told me that at one point early on, he said to Travis, yo, we got to figure out who it's going to be when Mike or Josh dies. One of them's going to die. Right. Um, and it got that serious. I mean, obviously we're robbing stores and fucking quitting tours and just, you know, it got bad. And I always feel a real, you know, I'm ashamed that I put them through that, but that's um, also though a great rhyme, robbing stores and quitting tours. Do you ever use uh, that? See, I can't help but rhyme, dude. Yeah. It's just in my blood. It's I in my know. DNA, man. I love that. Um, so like when you finally fucking walked away from, like, how did you get clean? Like, how did you stop using? Oh man, dude. And this is, you know, I know a lot of people, I have a lot of really close friends who looked this thing in the eye and cleaned up with their own grit and their own determination. And 
I, that's not how I did it, man. I, you know, my wife now was my girlfriend at the time, has never, ever in her life even seen heroin. Um, I had a dealer that was trying to kill me. Uh, now, I don't think he'd have killed me, but he'd have hurt me. He's a bad guy, really bad guy, who, you know, I owed him 600 bucks. Um, he was waiting at my house. I couldn't have Tammy go home. He's the kind of guy that would do something to her. Right. Like, he, bad guy. Um, the opposite The opposite of Frank. Yeah, the opposite of Frank. Yes. Although, I get the feeling, man, if you owed Frank money, though, it would Frank's one of those dudes yeah. that's real gangster, too. I get the feeling. Right. But, uh, yeah, so I had to tell my girlfriend at the time, she's my girlfriend, I had to tell her I'm a, I'm a heroin addict and uh, please don't leave me. I need you. And she, you know, was just mortified. And uh, she didn't leave me and she moved me an hour away, which when you don't have a license or a car or friends with cars because you hang out with nothing but losers and junkies, it might as well have been Europe. It might as well have been California. It was, she moved me to Albany. And that was 12 years ago. And that, that was the catalyst that that's really what saved my life. It wasn't, you know, dude, I came up here and had fully planned on using drugs again, uh, fully a hundred percent. I just was going to stop and like go on suboxone just to get people off my back. And, uh, my, you know, and then all of a sudden some time went by and then all of a sudden a guy calls and says, Hey man, like you're a fucking, you're one of the best drummers I've ever seen. I never thought I'd get a chance to play with you. Come be in my band. And then I'm in his band. And then all of a sudden, you know, at some point it clicked where I was like, oh my God, it's been X amount of time uh, that I haven't done heroin. And I just, I felt like I tricked it. I wish I had a better story, but that's the truth. I tricked it. And when I got away, I ran and never looked back. And, and you, it was the Suboxone that made it possible to not I mean, use. Oh, yeah, dude. Suboxone And you, really, you didn't and go I to get, treatment that time. You just went, went upstate. Yep. I just went upstate because I, I wasn't stopping. I was just, use, just using the Suboxone to get people off my back at first because I'd fucked up, dude. There's a goddamn dealer at my house. Uh, who's who's telling me $2,500 a limb to all my friends. I could see my friends mulling it over, you know, like, fuck, dude, we'd break his arm. He'll be psyched once we get him high, like, right. you know, get this money. Like, this dude, all over 600 bucks, you know, he's going to spend that money just to prove a point. He's a really bad guy. This was not, at this point in my life, I had moved beyond just the talkers, you know? Right. Junkies did, fuck everybody over. Did I he, fucked everyone over. Did he, did he ever get paid, that guy? Uh, oh yeah. Okay. I had to send him the money and then it was, don't show your face around here. I'm still going to fuck you up all because I didn't pay him on Monday when the original plan was to pay him on Wednesday. I called him on Sunday and said, Oh, it looks like I might have that money on Monday. He's like, all right, good. Monday. It is. I was like, Oh shit, dude, it's going to be Wednesday. He's like, Nope. Fuck you. It's going to be when something else was happening that had him upset because he went nuts. And I'd seen this guy do terrible, crazy, violent shit. But so that might not be the guy to be. Fucking. I mean, that's like the intervention in your life that you needed. It's like, oh, it's, totally. it's so funny how, the, how, you know, everybody's story is different and everybody gets to the, the place in a different way. You just happen to have some crazy drug dealer who like probably made you take a look at everything that you had lost by being in this situation. And you were like, what the fuck? 
Yeah, dude. I mean, I, I was aware that things were out of control, but you're just maintaining this lie. I got this. It's so funny, too, because my wife is like we went to school together and she was like by high school standards, she was considered like way out of my league. Right. Like I run into people that went to our high school and they're like, I can't believe you and Tammy are together. That's crazy. But what they're saying is like, how could Tammy date such an mon- ugly monster like you? And what's funny, because I'm like, you know, super good looking guy, but I don't know what they're talking about. I, I know exactly, what, I know exactly what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. So Tammy not only didn't leave me, she paid for me to live for years, like four years. I had nothing. I did not make a dollar. I had nothing. Dude, I was a junkie. I owed the IRS $100,000. Any money that was to come to me, they took. And don't ever let anybody tell you they can't take it all. They take it all. Right. Gone. And so, um, and so you just started putting time together without using dope. And were you on some crazy dose of the Suboxone? Or how- oh, God, yeah. Dude, at first, and this is definitely addict behavior, but at first I'd have my dose, and then like I'd have a friend of mine mail me his dose because he was still using anyway right he'd just keep enough that it was like in his blood so i'd be taking like four a day um all at once in the morning and then you know uh i just i know that suboxone is like looked at in a certain way and i know you know i've never lived my life other than this junkie shit in like a fraudulent way so i think it's important to me to be truthful not just with you dave uh but like with myself and with your audience and with people is that Suboxone saved my life. Um, I'm happy to speak. Um, I've offered to speak on behalf of the company. I think any parent with like a dead kid would much prefer. I know I'd rather have my friends here. Um, yeah. I'm not saying it's perfect. I get it. It's not perfect. But I keep mentioning how like my weekend stash would be gone Friday night or I brought I bring out twenty five thousand dollars worth of drugs and it'd be gone in three weeks. Like I've never in my life taken Suboxone at night. I've never done that. Like it, it broke the roots of my like addict behavior, but certainly at first, no way, dude, it says right on it. Like you can't take more than a certain milligram. I'd take double that. Yeah. Like that's addict shit instead of, you know, I just, I don't know, man, but now I've weaned down to uh, a super low dose and I don't know if I'll ever be off of it. You know, I, I think I am ready. It's been, it's been a decade, man. It's been a, it feels like a lifetime, but I had a kind of sobering moment when, when I had brought it up with my doctor and it was like, all right, let's, let's get you off this. Like it's time. It's been a long time. Some of the people in my life, uh, weren't as thrilled with that idea. And I think that's just how much shit that I put them through and how much I scared them back then that it was kind of, it's like, you don't get to just wash this all away. Like it's still there. And there was like some fear with my parents and with Tammy, with my wife. Not to mention your life is stable now because the Suboxone got you stable. And now it's like, I think I'm ready to get off. And everyone's like, but it's been so good. You know what I mean? That's what my wife said. Dave, you're a smart guy, man. You take, that's like the words right out of my wife's mouth. She was like, I just don't see the reason to change anything when, you know, you've put together everything you dreamed of. Right. And uh, you crawled back. And I was like, you know what? I can dig with, dig that. So we weaned even further down and I'm on a really light dose. But people talk of Sabai. It robs me of everything, all the work that I've done when I see like friends of mine that work at rehabs. I'll post like a picture. It'll be like the walking dead, a zombie. And it'll be like junkies be like, nah, bro, I'm clean. I'm on Suboxone. Right. It's literally right. a picture of a zombie. Right. Yes. It's like, yes. oh, man. 
Dude, um, the, the whole the whole recovery meme like cabal, like the 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 clique of of you know junkie meme makers, like they're brutal with people on Suboxone. And brutal, uh, yeah. When Chris was alive, and we would we would talk about methadone and Suboxone, I would say how like. Well, and it was for me, like for me, when I would do methadone or when I was on Suboxone, I would still take dope and I would still take pills and I would still smoke weed. I never actually got clean on it. So I always assumed that it didn't really work for anybody because it didn't work for me. And I caught a ton of shit from uh, the listeners about it. And then I kind of just settled on how is your life? Is it good? Then good for you. You know what I mean. So like, absolutely, dude. You're, I mean, again, that lands really hard for me. I could not agree more. And it's like, if if you don't want me to say that I'm clean, that's fine. If, if my version of clean doesn't have to line up with what you, not you, but you know the proverbial you, like deem to be clean. I know that there's a big difference when I wake up now in my house and like back, ten years ago when I woke up and my first thought was what piece of gear am i gonna i'm out of gear to sell what who am i gonna rip off and rob and what kind of ugly fraudulent liar's life am i gonna put together to get high today and my that's just like i don't even have drug dreams really anymore i mean um last time i said that i had one so i don't want to but i had i had drug different I, i had drug dreams last night like no way i had crazy drug dreams last night i dreamt that i was uh like I was at a business meeting, but one of the dudes at the business meeting was on dope. So I was asking him, like I was like getting dope off the dude at the business meeting because I saw he was on it. You know what I'm saying? And then I was on it, and it was just like, it did was, you use it in the dream? No, but it was like it was it was like time passed during the dream. So I was like, by the middle of the dream, I was totally on heroin. I was just addicted oh to it. I never used it, but I went from like sidling up to being on it. And then at the end of it, it was like medicated assisted treatment. At the end of the dream, it was like it was like it was ridiculous. I still have dream. I haven't had. I haven't taken a drug in uh in you know almost five years and anything and and I, I i sometimes like i'll take benadryl to help me sleep and that gives me crazy dreams but i didn't take anything last night and i'm having this ridiculous using dream yeah um, i've had a few powerful ones dude I, I did when i say i don't have them i mean i don't have them regularly because for a while it was a real issue for me man like i'd have them i don't want to put a number on it but i mean at least five a month like it was it was pretty consistent and then like uh, you know, time was going on and on and on. And then I had this dream and I didn't even think about it. So I told my wife about it. And then I was like, whoa, that's the first time I ever wasn't a junkie in a dream like that. I can remember because in the dream, my friend was doing drugs and I was like, dude, what are you doing? We don't do this anymore. And woke up and was like, oh, I drug dream. Oh man, I was fucked up. Oh, it just left me with this feeling. And then I was like, wait a second. I wasn't a junkie in the dream. Yeah. And that was like a powerful, you know, afterwards, like kind of a powerful moment. But recently I had one where I was using, I was back in my parents' house and I used in the dream, dude. Like I sniffed it up and I could feel it. And it was, and I remember I was like, what, I guess, what am I doing? You right. know, it's like, who knows if that was just like one millisecond of a thought in a dream, but like it happened. And that when I woke up, I, I had this real a sense of guilt and just made me feel like, God, is that even possible? Cause I do feel, I just feel like there's no way I'd ever again do drugs. There's just, I get that you never want to say never. And, but I, I just, maybe I'm eager, maybe I'm overly eager to put this 
behind me. I'm willing always to talk about it and to be open and honest about it. But maybe there's some over eagerness on my part to truly kind of wipe that part of my life clean. But there it is. And then here I am in the dream using like it wasn't even uh, somebody else doing it. I did it. Well, I was hiding it in my drawer the yeah, whole nine. And it was powerful. It's man. the strangest thing, the way your brain works. Like I, I couldn't be more separated from my old life. I mean, I guess I do a show about using and, and, you know, I do this show, which is very connected to drugs. But besides that, I live in the suburbs with kids and a job and like my brain is still like right there. You know, in in, yeah. in, the, in the in the ether of my brain or whatever. Let me ask you this: like with all of this, um, you know, the idea of that you can't claim clean or whatever. Like, does it get you angry? Uh, do you not care? Like, like how do you feel? No, I. You know, I, it's weird because I don't care that much, like personally. But I don't like feeling like I'm a fraud. I don't like lying. You know, so it, it feels like close to a lie. So I've been open and honest with people, but I've definitely used the words clean. And it's like, if that's a no, no in this realm, then I won't, I won't say I'm clean. And like, I have no, I don't have a hang up about being on Suboxone. Like I, I hate to sound so like over the top, but like I've seen the evil that like is drug addiction. And like, I'm perfectly fine with something that like a group of people deem not officially clean because of how different my life is just like you said dave like my i just feel so far removed from that part uh of my life and that person it feels like so many lifetimes ago but like my life is good and uh so on that way i don't but then there is a way that's like you know i'm i'm really envious and uh probably jealous of people like yourself and my lifelong uh best friend one of my lifelong best friends barry and his wife, Marissa, who, you know, they cleaned up, uh, old school cold Turkey and they did it. And these, these, these people were as gone as me. Right. Um, and I'm always a little jealous if that's the feeling that I get, I'm a little jealous that I didn't have the moxie to, uh, face it down. But I can tell you this, and this is the truth. I did really, I really, really tried in my own way. I never gave the program if, cause if I, if you try with the program, it works. I didn't try with the program, but man, I feel like I did try my best and, uh, and I failed. So I do have like, you know, I'm envious in like a good way. It's envious, but I guess in a bad way, it's, I am jealous, but I'm, I'm, I'm willing to admit that. And I get it that it's not the same thing again. Like when faced with, you know, if I had to make a choice, like if God came down and it was 10 years ago, he said, listen, here's the deal. You can be on this thing and this group of people is going to kind of dick you, call you a clown for it. They're going to say you're not really the shit, but your life is everything that you ever dreamed. You're carving out this fantastic existence. You get to make peace with your brothers in the band and get to kind of reclaim that piece of your life that you flush down the toilet. You can have all that. The rub is... You know, people that work at rehabs are going to say you're not really clean. Right. I would take it in a heartbeat. You well, know? Of so. course. But also, like, I mean, you you can always, you know, get off of it if you... I mean, like, I'm not even saying that you should. I'm just saying you have options. And, like, you, like, 
I don't know, like we were doing the show and I was thinking that the show wasn't as big as I wanted it to be. And like, what should it be? Like, maybe it should be like a movement because it seems to help people get clean, if nothing else. Because a lot of people don't respond well to to the program, to 12-step uh, treatment, whatever, 12-step recovery. And it, and it worked for me because I needed it to, you know? I needed it to work. But like, the point is that we decided that like, Dopey can be about anybody's method of having a good life that was addicted. And we, we called sure. it like the, the alt recovery movement because it sounds catchy, but like there is no reason to like be jealous of anybody else's, uh, Recovery and like you can walk away from a suboxone if you want. You can live the life you're living. I mean, that's the the thing is that you sound so good and you went through hell and you paid the price. So don't get don't get stuck on that shit, right? Yeah, and I I think I've done a pretty good job. I'm just trying to be like I had a respect for your podcast and I told you what a big fan I am of it. I, I hear a lot of people on here really like you know talking about some sometimes uncomfortable truths and this is one and I, I made a decision when we talked before and you said is there anything you don't want to bring up and I said no because I want to own it and if I'm if I'm really digging deep there's probably some jealousy but this does not keep me up at night this is not a big deal to me um in fact my friends Barry and Marissa who are you know really inspiring they have a beautiful family and when I say things got bad for them I mean we're talking as bad as it gets CPS took the kids, the whole nine. Dude. Right. I mean, it got really, really ugly. And there, they found out, Marissa, she goes, wait, you're still on Suboxone? And I was like, yeah. She goes, oh, shit, I didn't know that. Well, good for you. And right. they're like the kings of rehab. So it was like totally not judgmental, and they didn't really give me any reason to feel uh, jealous. But, I, you know, if I'm, if I'm being for real, you know, there's a piece of me that's like, man, I wish I did it that way. Um but I didn't. And, you know, dude, that's why I say I tricked it. I wish I didn't have this, like, epiphany. I spent years having an epiphany in the mirror every day. You have got to stop. You've got to stop. And what would I do? I mean, dude, I was in rehab, and the deal basically was to save your job in the band. Dude, we, we've had enough of this. You have to do this rehab. You're going to walk out of there feeling better, and it's going to take some time. And I remember my roommate took a shit. And he was cleaning up and it was one of those getting clean shits. And I was just like, oh, dude, I'm not staying here. Like, then I took a shower and already the water was starting to hurt. Like, right. just the temperature change. And it was, and I fucking ran right. with everything on the line, dude. Everything on the line. And fuck it. Let me just get high once and then I'll figure it out. And then that continued for years. And because I didn't have a dollar no less. There's never a once. There is no one anything. You know, oh, of course, yeah. And, and that, that's, you know, that's the deal. Um, I appreciate uh, your story, and I also, like, think, I think that there's a ton of people, you know, if you go by the numbers, the numbers say medical-assisted treatment is a way more effective means of treating addiction than anything because people get to live. You know what I mean? And, like, that's a big deal. I, I you know, like, I couldn't do it. Like, I, if I took uh, anything, I would wind up on drugs. That's just the way I am. So like, well, that's how I did it too, Dave. I mean, suboxone for me didn't work for years, dude. Like, you know, my doctor deserves a lot of credit. He against like his better judgment. He told me, he let me back on the program because I'd failed out a bunch of times. And what, what was rejoining the band? Like, like how did that happen and how did it work out? Oh, it was, can you imagine dude? Like what a powerful kind of moment for me that was like, uh, 
you know, in my town, upstate New York, small town, I was like the hometown boy that made good. And that felt good, dude. I was drunk on that experience. And it's, you know, instead of just like feeling good that you accomplished something and then moving on to the next thing, I like reveled in it. I was like, I'm cool. It's so pathetic. Um, but it was all wrapped up in the band. You know, if you're not in a famous band, you're not cool, man. Like it isn't, you're not cool. Like what you're doing is cool and whatever. But all that I went from hometown boy made good to like, imagine somebody saying that like, Hey, there's Josh Eppard. He's in this band. They're, they're really doing great to there's Josh Eppard. He threw it all away. Like old timers would come up to me like, so you threw it all away, huh? Right. Whatever old man, get out of here. You know, like, but I'm sure uh, you felt like that. So it must've been the best feeling. Oh, dude, it was so, like, it was really powerful, but it really came from, I had accepted, this is part of, like, my life's philosophy now, I had truly accepted that my time in the band was over, and what I really wanted was to try to salvage the relationship with Claudio and Travis, two guys who didn't deserve what I did, and they gave me even if they never let me back in the band, this was already a powerful moment when they came to my mom's house to talk to me. We hadn't seen each other in years. I'm watching these fools on TV and in my heart and in my mind, that's my band. And then they went on without me and, uh, and it hurt, dude, it hurt so powerfully, but I was able to tell them that. And you know, that's a real, that's beyond a solid that they gave me an opportunity not only to truly apologize like they weren't just coming around because i asked they knew they kind of kept their tabs on me from afar they knew i was in another band that signed to universal they knew that we had toured for two years and you know that band commercially didn't take off but they would they'd catch wind of it and they they said to themselves i imagine they said wow he must have put this drug shit behind him maybe maybe we give him a chance to talk to us now never even thinking about being in the band again i had accept i feel like my reward from the universe or from whoever decides these things for truly accepting that it was over was that it wasn't over because i had i it landed it was it was done and i had to to move on i had to accept it i was really just interested in being friends or salvaging any kind of relationship with those guys uh and the manager blaze who had you know had been like the subject of a lot of my ire, a lot of my like angry stuff who really didn't deserve it. And I had painted him in such a bad light to some people around me because that was easy. And that was, I was cowardly. And instead of saying like, Hey, I'm a junkie. I'd be like, no, I'm clean. It's blaze. The LA manager. Right, 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 right. It's a really easy story for people to swallow to. They're like, yeah, of course that it's the LA manager's fault. That scumbag, you know? Right. But, um, so I wanted to make, amends i mean that's what my my friends that went through the program did and it was important to me that i say to them like and it was fucked up man i was nervous as hell they show up and we're standing in my kitchen i hadn't seen them in like four or five years and i said i want you guys to know and i'm I'm starting not to like i'm starting to cry a little bit so my voice is getting shaky and i was like you guys were my i think i told them you're my heroes because it was true in a way like i think we're all each other's heroes we we did something together that just doesn't happen and it's just really powerful for me that happened and i was over the moon can you imagine how i felt when they called and they said hey what do you think about being in the band again i fucking start crying instantly i started crying and my wife right in front of my wife was all embarrassing it certainly um, it didn't happen for steven adler that way <laughs> at least no, you it definitely know, didn't i i love i mean it's it's such a great a great uh 
piece of the story because it's obviously not over when this fucking coronavirus goes away you guys can get back out on the road and uh i think it's awesome man i love it um yeah i mean kogi it's amazing that we continue to kind of check off these boxes you know we're doing a cruise well we'll see if it happens but in october and uh a cruise, like our own Coheed cruise. Now that's a big step. It's like, oh my God, are we really the kind of band that can do that? So the company that does the cruises, they do Kiss, they do John Mayer, Paramore, an endless list of bands that are enormous. Like if you ask 10 people, if I was to gather 10 people right now, it'd be really hard. But if I was somehow able to find 10 people, I bet you none of them have heard of Coheed and Cambria, but they've all heard of Kiss. They've all heard of John Mayer. They've all heard of Paramore. That company, the fastest sellout they've ever had was Coheed and Cambria's cruise, which is, that is an insane fact to me. Like, that is insane to me. It doesn't even compute. It's another one of those moments, Dave. Well, it's like, it's like, it's that connection with your audience. Like, it's a cult following. It's, it's devoted fans. Um, yeah, I, we're so lucky that it's that too. Because what if it had moved beyond that? Who knows? Maybe then it's just another thing. But we share like a real thing with our with our audience. I mean, half of them I feel like have become my actual friends. And you know, Coheed fans in general are generally creative, cool, smart people. And I don't. I, I bet every fan base thinks that way about their fans. But it's really the truth. And we're so lucky. And I'm, I'm so glad that the music that touches me and that I'm a part of touches them. It's a really powerful thing. And thank God, eight, nine, whatever it was, 2011, November or late October, they called me and asked me to jam and it changed the whole course of my life, dude. Like, you know, I was back where I was supposed to be, you know, and it was, um, I can't believe it happened. Cause that scene, if you had asked me two years prior, if that could ever possibly happen, the answer was unequivocally, it was no, it was absolutely not. Um, but that acceptance, I feel like in some way birthed it actually happening, which is a weird thing to say. So I, what kind of advice would that be to somebody? No, you have to truly accept that it's over to move on so you can have it back. So well, that's it's a strange thing even for me to say, you know, but that's how I got my family back. It was exactly that way. It was exactly. Can you tell me about that? Dude, that you can't just say that and then not tell me I'm real. I'm all ears. No, it wasn't until I had accepted that it was over that, that it wasn't going to happen and that I, and that I could move on with my life that uh, she came back to me and I got to be back with her and my daughter and we had another daughter. It was, it was only because I had uh, accepted that it was done and I wasn't begging for it anymore and I knew it was over. You know, that, I mean, it's like, it's weird. You need to close a door for another one to open, even if it's the same one. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, dude, you need so to it close sounds it. like you get it. No, I, sometimes It's a I strange do. thing. I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, I think just to hear that that story, like crazy music success and, and success on medicated assisted treatment, is a big deal. And and I and I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, Dave, uh, I, it was a really a treat to get to talk to you. And uh, I do hope you know I do feel compelled to speak about Suboxone and being on Suboxone and having the treatment work for me because you know there's somebody out. You don't need to give junkies like a lot of reasons to not. Try some dope. Right. You know, it's like I know I would take any reason to do dope. I remember when I first started a suboxone program, it was with a totally different doctor, and the guy told me he's like, "I'm not starting you on a Friday, so do whatever you got to do to get by." I went and dropped like three grand on dope. I was like, "Doctor's orders, bro." You know, I was all psyched about it. So if there's a kid out there, or a kid, man, woman, anyone out there that like 
they hear a podcast or they hear a doctor say, well, the suboxone is bad as using heroin. I'm here to say that in my experience, that's not true. It helped me bridge the gap. Then I weaned down. And yeah, one day, you know, I will get off of it. But if you were to compare my life 10 years ago to now, there's there's no comparison. And I do feel I'm going to catch some heat from people about this. And, and that's fine. I don't think you, you know will. my version of putting a good life together included suboxone. And I think it could for other people. I don't want. So I don't, I think those people that say things like that have blood on their hands in a way. I mean, it's, if there's something out there that can help, maybe they should explore that because it's worked for people. I'm living proof. I can't be the only person in America or in the world that it's worked for. No, the numbers, the numbers, the numbers show that medicated assisted treatment is more effective than any other form. So, I mean, I think you're a great example of it, you know? Yeah. And it was still work. I mean, God damn it, dude. At first, even on Suboxone, it sucked. You of know, course. was it, it as bad as going through sickness without it? No, fuck no. But of course, I still couldn't get dressed. I still couldn't like get up. It took time. And then, you know, like it was very junky behavior, dude. I'd be taking eight a day four. let them dissolve four more. That's insane. I could hurt myself. No, I remember um, I was getting such bad dope for a while that the first time I had Suboxone, I got higher than I was getting on the dope. Well, that's not, I remember taking Suboxone the first time somebody told me, oh, it's like Oxycontin. You, have, you let it dissolve in your mouth. And then, uh, you know, we've taken our, all our oxys were gone. We took those. Oh, so give me some, we used to call them the hexagons. You got any of those hexagons? Yeah. Um, that's another, like, you know, I'm sure if my wife were to take a suboxone, she'd be fucked up. She would be fucked but, up. You know, me too. Yeah. My two milligrams of suboxone doesn't, I forget to take it all the time. Um, like at the end of the month, I should have one left. I have eight left eight right. times in the month. Right. I just forget up and get busy. I forget to take it all the time. It doesn't. You know, I did a lot of opiates. It doesn't get me high, but then people, you know, this came up with the band, dude. Like Travis had read, Travis's wife had read an article and Travis said to me, he's like, you're just getting high this whole time, aren't you? And I was like, dude, I'm really not. I mean, I, I, I wish I could explain it to you in a way that like, that it would land. Like I'm, I'm not just getting high and, you know, laughing. <laughs> Fuck you guys. It's not, but. You know, yeah, if you were to take one, it would get you high. Like, it doesn't get me high. I mean, I would be crazy to think that there's not a way that it doesn't maybe, like, take the edge off or something. But, again, I forget to take it all the time because it's just such a little part of my existence. I wake up. I've never taken it at night, never took it in the midday. It's like a morning thing. I take it. It's done. And I go on with my life. Um, And I hope it's not like I'm not a doctor and I don't understand everything about it, but I can speak from my own experience and i i sure appreciate like the opportunity to do that dave Amazing. i love that i love that and you better send me a dopey verse because i want to put a dopey verse on this thing oh dude i'm gonna send we didn't even talk about weird science but it's a rap side project that i do it's people think it's so funny but i have six records out and we're working on a new it's record a big right now deal. it's like it's it's very you're very prolific and you're very skilled mc like people have to check it out some people think so. I sent a song to one of my favorite rappers. I won't say who he is, but it, for him to be on, was and it, he tweeted. Was it Eminem? Like, no, 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 it definitely wasn't Eminem. He tweeted. He is a successful big MC, though, and he tweets right, right after I send it to him. Five minutes later, he tweets, what do you do when, when a friend, a good guy, sends you music, but it's absolute trash? No way. 
And I was like, oh my God, dude, like there's one thing. It's like, you could say I have shitty lyrics. I can rap. I'm a drummer. I know how to, I have a flow and I think I'm a really great lyricist. Sometimes I think in my best moments I've, I've been. No, you put bars together. Sure. You put some shit together. I I totally agree. I totally agree. I just couldn't believe he said that. And it really, to be honest, I'm too sensitive for rap in general. Like it's, it's so mean and people are so like aggro and shit was it was it um, method man no it wasn't method man uh i can't say who don't say it's I, fine. It's i'm fine. such a big fan of his but i i was like my feelings were hurt and then I, it really opened my eyes i said man i'm not built for this rap shit <laughs> like that that hurt my could you imagine me in a beef with someone i'd be like crying like making a sad song about how i wish we could make up or something but but that's i'll own that that's I'll, what's I'll so special that my shit that's super special i love that check out weird science check out coheed and cambria cambria forgive my pronunciation and thank you man thank you for coming on is this is this it dave we hang up now we say goodbye that's it oh, i mean like oh, if you say goodbye to the dopey nation and then i'll say a separate goodbye to you all right. Well, thanks for having me, you guys. And I'll be listening, Dave. I love the podcast. And thanks for taking the time, my friend. Right on, man. I thought it was super cool to have Josh on the show. Uh, did you enjoy the interview, Aurora? Yeah, I like Josh. I thought it was very relatable. And, um, you know, I never heard of his band, but uh, <laughs> I'm not surprised. They have, what, 600 million downloads, you said? They have, they have a, they're a huge cult band. I'm surprised you haven't heard it just because you've been around the music scene so much. My favorite stuff that he talked about was to not have shame for being on Suboxone. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's interesting. It's like, like he said, like his life is so much better. Like he's not waking up every day and thinking about how he's going to like steal and to get drugs and, you know, it's given him a normal life, which I think is powerful. Of course it's powerful. And it's, it's just about, I mean, that's all anybody wants is to have a life that doesn't suck, you know? And it's like for people to judge anybody, it's like, it's a waste of time, I think. Um, so what else is going on with you? Um, oh yeah. Let's move on. I don't want to hear what it is. I don't want to hear anything else that's going on. <laughs> I want, I, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know if you thought. I, mean, I don't, I mean, what, how do you think that, what does the dopey nation feel about subs? Uh, I think it's mixed. You know, yeah. I think, I think dopey nation, what do you think about Suboxone? Do you think it's, uh, are you clean? Are you not clean? Do you not care? Are you on it? Uh, send an email to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Like I know the meme people all like do anti-suboxone memes all the time. That, but they also, they do also do homophobic anti-suboxone memes that say, if you're on suboxone, then you're gay. Um, which I think is funny. I'm sorry. Um, I, I, I get it. Cause I used to be very much like you're either clean or you're not clean, but I don't think that kind of thinking does any good for anybody. Yeah, I know. I mean, I, I feel like of two minds about it. I feel like judgmental, definitely. And like, you know, it makes me think like, you know, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Like, you know, what if he really tried to throw himself into recovery and work the steps and, you know, could he be clean and sober and have a life beyond his wildest dreams, like without being altered on subs, you know, without the maintenance. And then... I also think about my own mother who, you know, was on methadone for years, was a heroin addict, IV drug user. I have no idea if she ever actually, 
you know, tried to do AA or NA. I don't know if she ever, you know, took an honest stab at doing it thoroughly. You know, methadone did help her in a lot of ways to, you know, get a job sometimes and and have an apartment at times and, you know, be better. I would rather have, you know, have had my mom on methadone as instead of, you know, on the streets as an IV drug user, you know, I would rather have my mom now on methadone than not have her. I mean, I think that says everything, you know, I I think, I mean, I think that, that anybody can get clean. You know, I, I always thought that the, or sober, I always thought the constitutionally incapable line is a challenge. You know, I think nobody is constitutionally incapable of being honest. I think you can find honesty. I think, uh, we, I think you'd be better off if your mom had been on methadone the whole time. I think this path for this guy, for Josh, he likes it. If he wants to get off of it, like, that would be great. But, like, I have a buddy who was on, uh, we just did a, I did my first free dopey mini episode on Patreon. And this dude who's on a dopey scholarship to Aloe. Uh, was on methadone for years and years and years. He got off methadone and immediately started shooting speedballs, and he almost lost his arm because of an abscess because he couldn't fucking live without being on something. Now he's in treatment, and hopefully he'll he'll figure it out. But the point is, you know, you want people to stay alive and you want people to have the best life they can have regardless of what you or I might think of what's clean. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's crazy. The whole thing is like the real thing is mind your fucking business, right? You know, we just look out, take care of yourself, right? Yeah, help who want who help people who want to help, you know, and don't sit in judgment about you know people that are clean or you know doing it a different way. Yes. Would you like to read that crazy dopey email I sent you? Yes. Let me pull. All right, I got it here. So I want to say that this email, this woman mentions quite a few places in Michigan that I do not know how to pronounce. So please excuse me. Okay. Dear Dave, I know you get this a lot, but I want you to really, really fucking hear me when I say your podcast has given me the company I have needed the past few years. Please never stop. I'm writing this to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, on the eve of my five years clean anniversary. Since I can't leave my house and celebrate due to the virus, it would mean the world to me if you read my email. I grew up in Frankenmuth, Michigan, which is directly between Flint and Saginaw, Michigan. It's a small German tourist hotspot filled with small shops and attractions and home of Zender's Chicken Dinners. Mm. I now reside on the west side of Michigan with my husband, Dave. I'm going to hit you with the dopey in honor of Chris. Chris is the only person I have ever connected with as far as my war stories go. I started listening to the podcast very shortly after he passed, and I very quickly knew it was going to be difficult for me to continue listening. You have done a great job, Dave. You really have. Here it goes. A few years into my addiction, which started in Saginaw and landed me in Ypsilanti, Michigan, I became a pro at boosting alcohol. Me and the person I used with, which I shouldn't name, would hit all the stores in the area, Kroger, Walmart, and Meijer. Do you know how to say that? No, I'm not from fucking Michigan. Yeah, we're not. I would go <laughs> in first with tin foil and a screwdriver. I would put multiple bottles of booze in my cart. Tennessee, Grey Goose, Remy Martin, shit like that. 
I would go into another aisle and depending on what kind of alarm was on the bottle, I would either pop it right off with the screwdriver I had hidden in my boot or I would wrap tin foil around the entire alarm device. Then I would hide the bottle somewhere in the store and then leave. And then he would go in and take the bottles. He never went into the liquor aisle, so it wasn't sketchy, and the alarms were deactivated, so it was in and out. We would trade these bottles for our heroin and crack habit. We were living out of my car at the time. One night, we were on our way to boost some bottles, and I got rear-ended. The person must have been drunk or something because after they smashed into me, they took off back into the highway. Police were called, and a police report was made, blah, blah, blah. We made our way to Meijer's land, did our routine, stole a bunch of bottles, and went to trade with our dealer. Later that night, after shooting a few hundred dollars worth of crack, I noticed I had a voicemail on my phone. That was weird to me because I had zero contact with anyone during this time besides my dealers. It was a 734 number, so I figured it was my dealer. It wasn't. It was the police. They picked up the man that had rear-ended me and wanted me to come in to identify him so they could process his arrest and charge him with hit and run. All cracked out, I said, oh my God, they caught him. We have to go down to the station and identify him. Mind you, it is around 2 a.m. at this point. I talked to the guy I was with. I talked the guy I was with into driving to Belleville, which is where the police station was. He made me drop him off at Walmart because he said it was sketchy and he didn't want to be a part of it. I made my way to the police station in the middle of the night and walked in. There was a police officer behind the desk, which was behind a bulletproof glass divider. I said, my name is Janie. I'm here. Jamie, sorry. My name is Jamie, and I'm here to identify the man that hit me earlier tonight. The officer stared at me and said, what? I repeated myself confused as I was told in the voicemail that they would be expecting me. He sat there staring at me and finally said, ah, yeah, okay, hang on. I stood there for five minutes, starting to get sketched out, like, what the fuck am I doing here? And I realized I had three needles in my back pocket. I thought to myself, wow, that's not smart. So I grabbed the needles out, and I put them safely into my underwear. Ten minutes had passed until no one has come out. I start to get sketched out and begin to walk out. Next thing I know, the tallest police officer I've ever seen comes walking out of the side door. He has each of his thumbs in his pockets, walks slowly towards me, and says, Miss Har- Harvey. I slowly and very tweakishly say yes. He says, do you know why you're here? And I say, yes, I'm here to identify the man that hit my car earlier tonight and took off. I notice he's holding multiple full-size printed pictures. He shows them to me and says, is this you? He's showing me pictures of myself in major earlier that night. Confused, I take a step back. He says, turn around, you're under arrest. All of the crack and heroin in my system comes to a screeching halt. Under arrest? What? What is happening? As he handcuffs me, I start to realize what had happened. They tricked me. They didn't expect me to show up. I drove myself to jail and walked myself right into the building. He brings me back through multiple huge doors and sits me down and handcuffs me to a bench in a room with computers and other cops. My next thought is I have all these needles in my pants. I was always told that if I got arrested, to be honest about needles right away, because if you aren't a cop gets poked, that is serious business. However, there were no female police there to do a body search on me. So I sat there for over an hour waiting for a female from another department to show up. She finally showed up and asked me if I had anything sharp on me that I needed her to know about. I whispered, yes, I do. I have three needles in my underwear and one of them is not capped. 
She was very nice. I told her I would get them out if she were uncomfortable from the bench. I took them out and carefully placed them into the evidence bag she was holding open for me. I spent the night and some of the next day in the jail cell and got out on a PR bond the next day. I went right back to doing the same shit, but things got 10 times worse. I will email again with some more dopey, but this one I've been saving to share with you guys for my five-year anniversary as I can laugh about it now. What a dumbass. Those police officers got very familiar with my face the next few months. That was the beginning of my absolute rock bottom. In four hours, I will be five years clean. Every day is a struggle to stay off drugs, and I have made a new life for myself. Dopey is one of the only things I have that lets me feel like I'm not crazy. Toodles for Chris. Fucking toodles for for Chris. Jamie from Michigan. Oh, such a good such a good email. Yeah, I love that email. Yeah, she's a dumbass, but I mean, I, yeah, I, I, it's unbelievable. You know, I I luckily I never drove. Like I barely drove, and it, I I could not imagine going to a police station with drugs. You know what I mean? I just wouldn't do it. But uh, I get it. I, I I did a bunch of other stupid shit. She didn't say she had drugs. She just had needles. I know, but she was on drugs and she had needles and she went to the police station. Whatever. Was, we, we do dumb shit. She was insane. She was out of her head, two in the morning, high on crack. But more importantly, let's let's give a huge uh, congratulations for Jamie's five years. Fucking Yes, five years is a huge deal. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, I know Chris would knock the vape, so I will knock my cell phone against my bullshit desk. Um, now, I, I know that you are not on Reddit, right, Aurora? No. Well, Reddit is a very dark and mysterious place. <laughs> and, uh, and Dopey Reddit sometimes is incredibly uh, flourishing and flush, and sometimes it dries out like the desert. But um, last week I was perusing Reddit and I found a Reddit post that I took a picture of because I thought it was funny and I wanted you to read it on the show. You got it? Yeah, I got it. So read it. Is Dave stupid or making it up? He seemed pretty nonchalant about having COVID-19. Does he think he's invincible because he's survived ODing a bunch of times? Or does he not actually have coronavirus and he's just making this up? for the attention he so desperately craves. Uh, I, can, I can imagine him doing that. I can't fucking stand his voice, his entitlement, uh, his conviction that uh, he's interesting when he so clearly isn't. Wow. There are way better podcasts about addiction and recovery than Dopey, hosted by a privileged man-child who loves the sound of his own voice. <laughs> Why am I even posting on this sub? I don't even think I read that clearly. That's some right hate mail. That's some serious, serious, serious dislike. And I wrote him. You know, I wrote him uh, in the Reddit. Um, Did he write you back? No, he didn't write me back. I think he hates me. Yeah, it sounds like he hates you. You know, I was just going to comment that lots of people got the coronavirus and didn't have bad symptoms. And I was just one of them, you know. And I had fever and very sore throat. And I was sick. I didn't realize that he he hates everything about me and the show. And yet he listens to the show and writes on the dopey subreddit. What do you think that's about? I don't know, man. Maybe he was a early, maybe he loved it early on and now he's he's come over time to just hate it. But he's listening. I don't know. The, yeah. I don't know. I don't know why do trolls do what they do, Dave? I don't know. Why do you think they do what they do? I don't know, man. Maybe he's maybe it's youth, you know. Like he's just some dumb kid. 
No, well, I'm thinking about like the like all the Zoom bombing and all the trolls that have been on Zoom AA meetings and and other meetings lately. Like, I imagine it to be like young kids, you know, who are just like. I don't imagine it to be like older people. Well, the real question is this, right? If I don't like something, right, I just don't listen to it. And I certainly, like, I don't give it any time. I don't write the guy. I don't post about it. I just, I'm done. You know what I mean? Like, why? I mean, there's a whole bunch. I mean, yes, I understand people who really like the show and now they don't like it so much. But we're talking about almost two years since, since Chris died. So that's a long wow. time. You know what I mean? I was thinking about that. Are you going to do Christmas again this year? Of course. But I'm, what I'm saying is, like, what I think it's because the show is so irresistibly great that people can't help themselves but listen. Hello? Yeah. No, I'm thinking, of, I'm thinking about it. I mean, I don't know. You can't drive yourself crazy with this shit, you know? You can't, you can't put too much thought into it, like... You know, this is a this is a a service. This is a creative outlet for you. This is you know something that you take seriously as like your future, your job. It's something you love to do. You got to just do it. You know, you have to unapologetically be who you are and believe in what you're doing. And you know, I think it's cool that you like are open to criticism and you try to engage with people, but you can't take it too much to heart. Well, the funny thing is that normally I take this stuff incredibly badly, but um, when I read that one, better. I think you're getting better. I think I'm getting better. <laughs> you know, I think yeah. I'm getting better at it, but I also think like there's like my brain hasn't been working well. And I don't think I read it clearly. I don't think I saw all that bad stuff. I thought he just was angry because I thought I had the coronavirus. But it was a lot of really, really angry stuff in there. Yeah. Now, maybe, do, you know, what are you going to say? I'm sorry. Maybe he lost someone. Maybe, I don't know. No, this dude is a fucking dick. You know, the dude is a fucking dick. And he didn't even respond when I wrote him. So not only is he a dick, he is also a pussy. Which is a great thing <laughs> when you're a dick and you're a pussy. It's an amazing this accomplishment. You love, you love a good beef. This is good for you. I always love a good beef. But I'm also like I'm also the biggest pussy in the world. Like I and and a dick. I'm totally both of those things. I really am. What else you got, Rory? Give me some advice. What? How should I ask? When should I ask my landlord? Like, hey, what's the deal with rent? Can I get a reduction on my rent? Like, like today. Call him I was up. Thinking, I was thinking today or why? Monday. Why put it off? You know, in 2008, when the recession hit, I got my New York apartment owners to reduce the rent by $400. Dude, just make the call. He'll do it. He has to. There's a bunch of big-time Guido landlords in New York that are just not making people pay rent. Did you know that? Yeah, I read that. I read that. Yeah. I'm going to tell you a quick story before we go. Okay. It was the other night, and, uh, and we, <laughs> we had run out of dessert, and we had run out of milk. So I went to the supermarket to get dessert and milk. But the supermarket closes early in the COVID thing. So, mm-hmm. so I wound up going to 7-Eleven. And I was going to get myself a brookie. And I don't know if you know what a brookie is. It's a combination of brownie and chocolate chip cookie. It's amazing. But uh, they didn't have brookies. And they didn't. You remember in 7-Eleven the three-pack of chocolate chip cookies that I love so much? Yep, yep. They didn't have that. And and this, you know, 7-Eleven in Sayville doesn't even have dark chocolate. But you know what they do have? What? The super cookie. 
And the super, oh, yeah, yeah. the super cookie is like the size of a fucking frisbee. It's fucking eleven inches long in diameter. It's gigantic, gigantic cookie. Six, I think it was six dollars, and the size of a of a dinner plate, basically. So I buy it and I take it home, and um, and Nora was excited to eat the uh, the super cookie, and I was thrilled to eat the super cookie, and I warmed up a big piece of it, and Nora decided that it was too low quality a cookie for her. I I like that. I I think Nora has great taste. I mean, even the I think I've seen a super cookie. It sounds like shit. Well, me, I, I've lost all of my taste and smell to the coronavirus, and still. Oh, you did? I didn't know that. Yeah, all my taste and smell have been gone for like a month, and I'm eating more than I've ever eaten in my life. You've always been willing to eat like a low bottom cookie, though. That has nothing to do with the coronavirus. I'll eat a low bottom chocolate chip cookie just because <laughs> of the intention. You know, the intention of a chocolate chip cookie is incredibly meaningful to me. You want to try to do something crazy now? I'm going to try to get my, my dad on the phone. Let's, let me try it. Okay. I'm trying not to go to the store to buy ice cream and cookies right now and like being like, how dare you? That is not essential. I'm trying to only go to the grocery store every 7, 10, 14 days. It's like, it's like you, you've hit a new, a new level of, uh, of, of uh, I don't know if it's police officer or if it's that you're better than everybody. Dude, yeah, ice cream. It's a, it's a little of all that. But honestly, but, but also like fucking... Cookies are not essential. Like I should, I'm trying to stay out of a grocery store. Like I'm trying to stay out of the stores. Well, this maybe- week, LA County, they asked us, do not go to the grocery store this week. And like, if you don't need to go, do not go. Hold on. We're, 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 we're I lost you for a second. We're, we're, we're linking my father into the show. Say hello to Aurora. Hi. Hi, Aurora. Hi, Alan. Happy Passover. Oh yeah. We, we had a very short one. That's for sure. How, what via Zoom? Yeah, it was it was Zoom. It was a Zoom Passover. It was the, probably the worst Passover we ever had. Oh. <laughs> on the other on the other hand, it was very short. It might have been. It, the, was, it might have also been the best Passover we ever had. That's not true. Come on, we had great Passovers in the old days. It was a lot of fun, a lot of fun, and we miss all those. Aurora, you still have stuff on my terrace, you know, Aurora. I know, and I don't know when I'm going to come back to New York now. I would like to come back soon, but I'm a little scared about coronavirus. No, no, no. You, you can't come back now, that's for sure. No, this no. Is, it's, not, it's not good here. I hope it's going to get better. I'm, that's what I'm hoping for. Dad, where, 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 where are you? Where are you in the apartment right now? I'm sitting in the living room on that uh, chair, you know, that supposedly very comfortable chair sitting in the living room. Go go on the computer. I have to go on the computer? Yeah, go on the computer. Right. Okay, it's going to take a few minutes. Okay, we're in a pause. Alan, is somebody bringing you your groceries? No, no. No, David gives the impression I'm that I'm this old guy that can't do anything. That's not it. And you can't whatever he says I have. But no, I, I I do my own stuff. I'm doing my own cooking also. Good. Yeah, I'm cooking and cleaning like a 50s housewife. Well, I don't know about cleaning, but I'm doing a lot of cooking. To be um, honest, I'm cooking. My boyfriend's cleaning, thank God. Cleaning has never been my forte. Oh, wow. That's So that's all right. That's good. So you're, you're coping then, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, David, what do you want me to get on here? My father is desperately alone. And when he heard that you have somebody with you, he was incredibly excited. Right, Dad? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. Let me let me tell you. Yeah, that, that is true. Uh, I'm getting to miss uh, lots of people by not being able to get out. All right. Go on the reviews. All right. Hold on. Okay, I'm trying. Hit the button to go to the most critical review. I don't want to. I don't want to do the most critical. All right, then just do the most recent one. Right, hold on. Uh, let's see what you have here. Uh, again, on the uh, I, on the podcast episodes, you got ten out of ten when under drug recovery. Dad, why don't you give your review of when Aurora says like and you know? Oh, well, the guy last week... Uh, Andy was, Roy. What was his name? Andy Roy. Yeah, he, he kept repeating a phrase over and over again. It's kind of annoying, but I, I guess people get into this. Aurora has been absolutely super recently. She's been wonderful. She hasn't been Thank on the you. show in six months. Thank you. <laughs> All right, read the most recent That's review. old news, though, the um and the like. That's like from two years ago. I live for that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, Aurora, yeah, Aurora has, has been fantastic recently. All right, this is the most recent, April 7th. Okay, and it's from Whatever You Get Is Never Enough. And it's by Podcast Addicted. Now, I'm going to try and read it correctly. The only issue is there's only one a week. I always try and save episodes, but they never stay unplayed for more than a day or two, leading me to try and desperately re-listen to episodes I've already listened to multiple times, like scraping the bag to get legitimately the last little brown or white, or white, even knowing what little left is more plastic bag than actual drug leading you to desperately wish you just had saved just one last real bit, which sends you to looking all over the floor for specks of white and brown just in case. I don't know what she's talking about. You can't relate to that, Dan? No, I can let you talking about broken cookies or things like that. Uh, rest in peace, Chris, and continue on, Dave. So, Dad, you, don't, you don't, Dad, do you don't know what it's like to have to scrape the bag to get the end of the bag. I have no, I do not, um, unless I put cookies in a bag and I was trying to get the last bit out. All right, um, this has been great as always to have you on the show. Oh, how are you dealing? How are you coping with the coronavirus? Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I think uh, it's getting a little bit more difficult. I mean, now it's it, this is really a thunderstorm in Manhattan, which kept me inside. I'm going to try and get out later, but I'm not sure. Uh, it seems to be a big lack of freedom, which, of course, everybody seems to be suffering from. And I guess we have to keep doing it. Oh, I'm, I'm starting to do a show on uh, whatever it is. Um, something that was from 10 years ago, Homeland, is that what it's called? Yes. I, I started that because uh, it must be at least 10 years old. I've never seen it. So I think that's gotten my interest, so I'm going to watch that. Just do me anyway, a favor. When, when, you, when you go for your walks, don't walk towards the sick people anymore, okay, Dad? Walk away. Oh, yeah. You know, yesterday I was outside Trader Joe's, you know, looking looking for Lewis. I couldn't see him inside, 
And all of a sudden, this guy starts talking to me, and and without thinking, <laughs> without thinking, I started to answer him. And then all of a sudden, I realized, good grief, what am I talking to this person for? And I walked away uh, because he didn't have a mask on or anything. Did you? And, uh, yeah, you I did. I always wear wear a mask. I've been wearing a mask like for two weeks now in Manhattan. Yes. I think it's very necessary for all you guys to wear it. I think in Los Angeles, you're supposed to wear it now, too, Aurora. Oh, yeah. We, we're supposed to wear them to go. You have to wear them to go into any um, grocery store or pharmacy. Yeah, I went to the pharmacy yesterday, and it was great. It was, like, empty. And I mean, I had a mask on also, but it was really empty, which was really good. Did you hear so, that? Did you hear that? Yeah, that, I did that, get medicine. Did you hear that Fauci said you're not, no one's ever to shake hands again? It's over? Uh, I think that's a good idea. Yeah, I think that's good to change behavior. I think that is good. Uh, it may even cut down the flu every year. Are you? Gonna, um, what are you going to do instead? Are you going to bow? No, I don't think bow. Well, bowing is kind of cute if, if people bow, but uh, I don't know, kicking their ankle or hitting their elbow. I don't know. Elbow, yeah, yeah. So, Something like that. Aurora, you like the elbow more than the, the proper bow? Bowing could be really cute, though. Bowing is, I, you know, I'm, I, I've traveled in Asia. I, I like a good bow. I could get into it. I think receiving, receiving bows is better than giving them, but I guess it has to be mutual bowing, something like that. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on the show. As always, you've been incredibly enlightening. Yes, thank stay, you. Stay healthy. Stay safe. You too, Aurora. And listen, I hope one day you'll come back to New York and retrieve your stuff. That would be that would be nice. Yeah, unless I'm gonna plan, I'm going to try to plan on coming back in September. Oh, okay, that's great. All right, that's good. Very yeah. good. It would be good for you to come back. All right, love to you and uh, love to Davy. All right, and all right. Uh, bye, and, Alan. Lots of love. All right, everybody, stay healthy out there. All right, bye, bye, Dave. Bye, that. Thank you. You know, I saw something on the on Dopey Nation that they were somebody wanted more merch, more T-shirts, and they were going to make one that said like Toodles. Oh, you, I mean, you're really you're out of the loop. You're you're totally out of the Dopey loop. We have a new. What happened? We have a company called SRO Prints that's uh, run by addicts in recovery in Cincinnati, Ohio, and they're making amazing new Dopey merch. And we're working on a Toodles shirt, but I don't like the shirt. I feel like Toodles. Are they going to make, make one or a sweatshirt that says Me Nase Toodles? I think that would be fun. I think that's a great idea. I'm going to talk yeah. to them. I'm going to, I'm going to get, get yeah. right on that. I think if we had a shirt that said Toodles, that Toodles should be in script. Like, I don't see Toodles in the same font that Dopey is in it. It bugs me. Yeah, I agree. I think, that, I think it should be in a different font, too. Well, as always, it was a pleasure having you on this stupid show. And um, I think we learned a lot today. Do you? Yeah, it was fun being on. I love talking to you as always. And um, let's keep in touch. Let's yeah, keep let's, in touch during these trying times. Yeah, let's keep in touch. What was your favorite? What was your favorite part about the show today? I think my favorite part about the show was talking about what we're cooking, what we're eating, filling the void with pancakes and super cookies. Yeah, the super cookie was my favorite part. What was my least favorite part was my dad. What was your least favorite part? Um, you talking to your dad, you yelling at your dad. Oh, that's the best part of this. I, listen, I, I don't mean it. I, I love my dad and, uh, and I miss my dad in person, you know? Uh, and I know he misses coming here 
and I know he listens to the show. I, I think it, I think it's very hard for him to be by himself so much. And I love my dad and I love my dad on the show and I give him a hard time because he likes it. When I'm too nice to my dad, he doesn't like it. He likes it in real life. He doesn't like it on the show. It's breaking my heart a little that my shit is there and that I know that I can't come to New York for a long time to get it. Well, it's great that he, 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 he it's a service you're doing for him because he gets to complain about it. That's true. You need encourage him to stay home, please. He's, he's got it under control. I think he already had the coronavirus. I think he had it before all this, frankly. Um, I think he had symptoms in February, and it was this. But uh, that's just my, my theory, my wishful thinking. Anyway, stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. And thank you, Roar. Thank you. Do you want to say goodbye to me the Dopey Nation? Toodles. You say me not say toodles. Hi, Dopey Nation. Thanks for having me. And uh, me not say toodles. I want to see the, the sweatshirt. Right on. All right, go to dopeypodcast.com, and you can see all the merch, you dumb dumb. All right. I'm going to say it again. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. I want to take a walk around the world. I wonder would it do me any good. Until I get some money in my pocket, then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood. But I want to be good so bad. Wanna be so good, so bad, so bad. I wanna be good, so bad. Bad desires, all I ever had. And I wanna take a ride up in the sky. Watch the airplane just pass me by. And I wanna see a Lear jetliner take a dive, just to show all of these people what it means to be alive. But I wanna be. Wanna be so good, so bad, so bad I wanna be good, so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And my shadow's getting smaller, smaller And it's time to where I stand Shadow's getting smaller and smaller City far behind. I'll take the high road, however far it winds, because peace and love are very, very, very hard to find. And I wanna be good so bad. Wanna be good so bad, so bad. I wanna be good so bad. Bad desires all I ever had. Damn it, all these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had And these suckers make me mad And I want to call my dad And it's all I ever had